This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Mr. Secretary, welcome back to the committee. We appreciate you being here with us today. As we look across the world, from Cuba to Mali to Iran to China and, of course, Russia, authoritarians are crushing free speech, arresting dissidents, utilizing technology to control their citizens, relying on mercenaries and illicit weapons to target innocent civilians and topple governments. This is a confrontation between violent autocrats and those of us fighting for a rules-based international order, for democracy, human rights, and the cause of freedom around the world. Our diplomats and development professionals and our budget for these efforts, which we are examining today, are our front lines in this fight. So with that in mind, I'd like to take a moment to highlight some of our most pressing areas of concerns. I'm sure members on both sides will want to talk about these and others. Uh, in Europe, we must maintain absolute unity, as President Biden has said. And I believe your recent trip to Kyiv with Secretary Austin to show support for President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people uh, and to continue shining a light on Russia's military uh, brazen abuse of civilians that certainly amount to war crimes was a critical display of that unity, and we salute you for that visit. More broadly, this means countering Russian aggression with security assistance that aligns with our foreign policy, combating disinformation and election interference, delivering humanitarian relief, and helping neighboring countries with the huge influx of Ukrainian refugees fleeing violence. We have a responsibility to the American people and to Ukrainians themselves to ensure that we are effectively spending the $13.6 billion package Congress approved back in March. With only a minor increase in foreign military financing funds, I'd like to hear the administration's plans for countries in NATO's eastern flank and for Taiwan, for that fact, which is facing a similar threat from China. Whether it is Japan, South Korea, or Australia, when it comes to countering China, a strong alliance with our partners is vital. Xi Jinping's hypernationalism is more assertive around the globe than ever before. The State Department must work on a pragmatic appraisal of how to best combat China's predatory economic and trade practices so we have the ability to outcompete China in the generation ahead. Bilaterally and through robust presence and action in regional and international institutions. Authoritarianism also threatens Latin America and the Caribbean, a part of the world hit hard by the COVID pandemic. From Cuba to Venezuela and even Nicaragua, we're seeing arbitrary detentions, the dismantling of civil society, the weaponization of hunger and migration, all as Maduro carries out systematic extrajudicial executions. On top of this, an epidemic of criminal violence stretching from Mexico to Haiti to El Salvador is fueling a serious refugee and migration crisis. The Americas now host more than 18.4 million displaced people. This budget is a good down payment, but more will be needed to address these challenges across the hemisphere. Countering authoritarianism also requires serious investment across Africa, where Moscow has reasserted itself over the past several years and democracy seems on the retreat. Civilians from the Central African Republic to Mali have paid a heavy price with Russian Wagner mercenaries reportedly committing human rights abuses. And despite concerted diplomatic efforts by the administration, 
the democratic aspirations of the Ethiopian and Sudanese people have yet to be realized. Looking further north from there, I'm also expecting an update on what is happening with the JCPOA and negotiations with Iran. We were told that the end of February was the date in which we needed to conclude an agreement. It's going to be the end of April. So we look forward to hearing about that, as well as Iran's malign actions across the region. I'm pleased that the security of our important ally Israel is fully funded in this request, and I'm supportive of the funding request for Jordan. But I am concerned by cuts to security assistance in Iraq and we transition away from combat operations to bilateral diplomacy. In Tunisia, we'd love to hear a strategy confronting democratic backsliding. And in South and Central Asia, we need clarity on whether the administration will waive Katsa sanctions for India's purchase of the S Russian S-400 missile defense system, uh, and what role, if so, are they going to continue to play in the Quad? Also, in the wake of the Taliban's broken promise to allow girls to attend secondary school, their media crackdown, and the unfolding humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan, we need a better sense of the administration's diplomatic strategy. Across the globe today, we're facing multiple humanitarian challenges, refugee crises on several continents, and one of the worst food insecurity crises we have seen in a generation. Considering all of this, I do not think the administration's budget request to address humanitarian and resettlement needs reflects current global realities. The United States must elevate the needs of women, girls, and other at-risk populations. We must document war crimes. Added to this, climate change is a force multiplier which will exacerbate humanitarian crises and conflicts around the world. It requires us to rethink how we prepare for the future. From the energy security crisis in Europe and Ukraine to increasing sea level, severe weather and drought, including working multilateral to help partner countries advance clean, sustainable energy solutions. And we must also think about how to better prevent, detect, and respond to future pandemics. I want to applaud the State Department's push to modernize and increase diversity by adding internships, a chief diversity and inclusion officer across foreign affairs agencies, and equity strategies in our overseas policies and programs, including the department's high-level representative on racial equity. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee has also taken steps to join in that effort. And finally, I'd like to congratulate the department on launching the Bureau of Cyberspace and Digital Policy, which will be essential in our diplomacy on cyber and technology issues. So there's a lot to discuss, Mr. Secretary. We look forward to hearing your thoughts on how you see the department tackling some of these issues and challenges we face as a nation. I certainly want to say that we appreciate your service to our country. And with that, let me turn to the distinguished ranking member, Senator Rich, for his opening remark. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, uh, Mr. Secretary, thank you for visiting with us today. And uh, on a personal note, thank you for visiting with Senator Menendez and I earlier and uh, uh, giving us your uh, thoughts on your visit there and the systems that, uh, that are operating in the Ukraine. Uh, at the present time, as the world becomes more dangerous and complicated, we need the State Department to prioritize national security diplomacy and effectively spend taxpayer money to defend U.S. national interests. Now is the time for the Department to rebalance its risk calculus and get our diplomats back in the field, particularly in the Ukraine, to advance U.S. values and interests and compete against adversaries across the globe. However, in certain places like China, the administration appears to be recalcitrant 
uh, giving up the privileges and immunities that keep them and their families safe in order to appease Beijing's extreme response to COVID. I've heard reports of U.S. diplomats forced into government-run fever hospitals uh, for lengthy periods, living in squalid conditions and being forced to take medical tests for no legitimate reason. In response, the administration uh, has not uh, moved on this, and it should. Against this backdrop, uh, we've uh, been asked to consider whether the funding priorities set out in the President's FY 2023 budget re uh, request align with our most pressing national security interests. Just as last year, there are bright spots. For example, while I have major concerns about the ambiguous request for $6.5 billion in mandatory spending, I do appreciate the emphasis on global health security uh, within the discretionary budget. Chairman Menendez and I continue to advance legislation to improve uh, international pandemic preparedness and response, and I urge the administration to help us align those efforts. I'm disappointed by the failure to present a concrete proposal to reform U.S. international food aid, particularly in light of the global food crisis uh, exacerbated by Russia's brutal war in Ukraine. I am, however, pleased to hear the President and administration is open to ideas. Let's get to work on that. However, overall, the request continues a destructive pattern of asking for more resources to advance policies that run uh, counter to U.S. interests, including for energy projects, utilizing slave labor uh, from Xinjiang, uh, providing billions of dollars to an unaccountable green climate fund, and proposing to increase U.S. contributions for U.N. Uh, peacekeeping in contravention of the historic Helms-Biden agreement. Meanwhile, this budget re request undercuts security and humanitarian assistance. Mr. Secretary, I'm very glad that you and Secretary Austin went to Kyiv just a few days ago to show U.S. support for Ukraine. Our embassy needs to open up again. All our European partners are already back there. We need people on the ground to help Ukraine meet its needs immediately, and I was impressed by your description of what you found there that would certainly open the door for us to uh, reopen uh, our uh, uh, embassy there. Despite the unprecedented military assistance that the U.S. and our allies have sent to Ukraine, there is still more we can do. The tenor of this war has changed in Ukraine, and Ukraine needs different items than they did just one month ago. I urge the administration to transfer more advanced capabilities, including U.S. origin multiple uh, launch rocket systems, medium-range air defense system, and anti-ship cruise missiles, among other things. And I was impressed uh, with uh, what you reported to us uh, in uh, uh, confidence this morning. During the Korean and Vietnam War, Russia provided our enemies with aircraft and trained the enemy's pilots. It's high time we return that favor. Further, we must see expedited production of our new systems to backfill our allies and deter Russia. New sanctions and tighter export controls to starve the Russian war machine and expand humanitarian assistance. It is time to act aggressively not perform another deep dive that will take months to complete. After its victory in Ukraine, uh, after its victory, Ukraine will need extensive support to rebuild the country. The State Department should plan now for this huge undertaking, which will require participation from the entire civilized world. This all relates in a very real way with U.S. response to China's ambitions, the most important challenge facing the United States today. We started too late in providing security assistance to Ukraine. We cannot make the same mistake with Taiwan. Supporting an island during a war is much more difficult. Our assistance must be there beforehand. 
We must accelerate existing foreign military sales to, uh, to Taiwan so they get there quicker, and we should use security assistance to help Taiwan acquire additional capabilities. I've introduced language to do this. We need it now. Uh, in March, Chairman Menendez and I spearheaded an effort to get funding into the appropriate package for security assistance to Taiwan. And I fully agree with Senator Shelby's recent comments that we should absolutely spend more to help with Taiwan's defense. Uh, Secretary Blinken, I hope you can commit to that during today's hearing. Turning to the Middle East, it's clear that America's relationship with our Middle East partners is in desperate need of some work. These are long-time partnerships that we really need to maintain. Instead of, uh, of America as a steadfast partner, our Middle Eastern friends have seen increasingly restrictive security assistance policies. The botched Afghanistan withdrawal, an Iran policy that fails to deter regional terrorism, and a previously lukewarm embrace of the Abraham Accords. The Biden administration's Middle East policies have, re have re uh, reinforced a claim of American disengagement and pushed our longstanding partners towards China and Russia. This cannot happen. In Syria, we've seen a lack of Caesar sanctions enforcement. While our administration is not explicitly encouraging normalization with Assad, it is clear uh, there are no repercussions for others doing so. We cannot ignore this uh, or teach the world that a despot and a murderer can be rehabilitated just by hanging on for a long period of time. On Iran, we've been on the cusp of the nuclear deal for several weeks, apparently. Given the sunsets and short-term gains of rejoining the JCPOA, Israel, the Gulf, and other uh, cham uh, chambers of con Congress, other members of Congress have voiced loud opposition to rejoining the 2015 Accord. Our Iran policy must be one that can survive successive administrations and one both parties can support. To accomplish this, uh, uh, you need to get it right. From what we are uh, seeing uh, and what we are being told right now, you're in the process of getting it wrong again. Uh, no other issue divides this administration from Congress and U.S. allies than this issue. If you can't uh, get it right and it looks like you're not, walk away from this. That will be a victory and you will be applauded uh, for that. No agreement is far better than a bad one. Israel will see that Iran never completes a nuclear weapon. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Risch. With that, Mr. Secretary, the floor is yours. Your full statement will be included in the record without objection. Could you put your microphone on? I don't think it's on. Let's see. How's that? Good. Good. <laughs> Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Risch, thank you. It's very good to be with you, to be with every member of this committee today. Thank you for the opportunity uh, to speak with you about the administration's proposed budget uh, for the State Department. And as both of you noted, uh, I just returned from Kiev with uh, Defense Secretary uh, Lloyd Austin, where uh, together we demonstrated uh, the United States' commitment to the government and to the people of Ukraine. Um, I have to tell you, the trip left uh, an indelible impression. Uh, we had a chance to talk about it a little bit before the, uh, the hearing. Uh, as we took the train uh, across the border and rode westward into Ukraine, we saw mile after mile of Ukrainian countryside, uh, territory that just a couple of months ago, the Russian government thought that it could seize in a matter of weeks. Today, firmly Ukraine's. In Kyiv, we saw the signs of a vibrant city coming back to life, 
people eating outside, sitting on benches, strolling. It was right in front of us. The Ukrainians have won the battle for Kyiv. And for all the suffering that they've endured, for all the carnage that Russia's brutal invasion continues to inflict, Ukraine was and will continue to be a free and independent country. Um, it's impossible not to be moved by what the Ukrainians have, have achieved. Uh, it's also impossible not to believe that they will keep succeeding because they know why they fight. Um, seeing this, I have to tell you I felt some pride in what the United States has done to support the Ukrainian government and its people, and an even firmer conviction that we must not let up. Moscow's war of aggression against Ukraine has underscored the power and purpose of American diplomacy. Our diplomacy is rallying allies and partners around the world to join us in supporting Ukraine with security, economic, humanitarian assistance, imposing massive costs on the Kremlin, strengthening our collective security and defense, addressing the war's mounting global consequences, including uh, the refugee and food crises that you both alluded to. We will, we have to continue to drive that diplomacy forward to seize what I believe are strategic opportunities, as well as address risks presented by Russia's overreach as countries are reconsidering their policies, their priorities, their relationships. Uh, the budget request before you uh, predated this crisis, but fully funding it is critical, in my judgment, to ensuring that Russia's war in Ukraine is a strategic failure for the Kremlin and serves as a powerful lesson to those who might consider following its path. Uh, as we're focused intensely on this urgent crisis, the State Department continues to carry out the missions traditionally associated with diplomacy, like responsibly managing great power competition with China, facilitating a halt to fighting in Yemen and Ethiopia, pushing back against the rising tide of authoritarianism uh, and the threat that it poses to human rights. We also face evolving challenges that require us to develop new capabilities, such as the emergence and reemergence of infectious disease, an accelerating climate crisis, and, of course, a digital revolution that holds both enormous promise but also some peril. Um, last fall, I had an opportunity to set out a modernization agenda for the Department and for U.S. diplomacy to respond to these complex demands. Um, in no small part, thanks to the FY22 budget approved by Congress, we've been able to make real progress on this agenda, though much remains to be done. To give just a few examples, we have strengthened our capacity to shape the ongoing technological revolution so that it actually protects our interests, it boosts our competitiveness, it upholds our values. With bipartisan congressional support and encouragement, we recently launched a new Bureau for Cyberspace and Digital Policy with 60 team members to start. And I am grateful to Congress, to this committee, for long supporting uh, this effort, uh, for the ideas that um, uh, you shared in how best to do it. Uh, we're also making headway on ensuring that our uh, diplomats reflect America's remarkable diversity which is one of our greatest strengths, including in our diplomacy. Uh, we have, as the chairman noted, our first ever chief diversity inclusion officer who is spearheading an effort uh, to analyze and address the obstacles that prevent underrepresented groups from joining and advancing at state. We've extended, expanded the Pickering and Wrangell fellowships and created, for the first time, thanks to the support of Congress and this committee, paid internships at state, along with strong congressional input uh, and support uh, for all of these efforts. And we're showing results. Uh, we recently welcomed a new cohort of 179 exceptional Foreign Service professionals. That's putting our department on track for its largest annual intake 
in a decade. Uh, my first 15 months in this job have only strengthened my own conviction that these and other reforms are not just worthwhile, they're essential to our national security and to delivering for the people we represent. Uh, today's meeting marks, by our count, the 100th time that I've had an opportunity to brief Congress, which is one of the ways I've worked to meet the commitment that I made in my confirmation before this committee to restore Congress's role as a partner both in our foreign policy making and in revitalizing the State Department. Ensuring that we can deliver on the agenda will require sustained funding, some new authorities, and maybe most important of all, partnership from Congress. That's why I'm grateful uh, for uh, the Chairman and Ranking Member's request to establish a formal dialogue on the State Department authorization, a request that we have delivered on, and we're going to uh, look forward to working in detail with you as the authorization process moves forward. Um, if we want to deepen our capability in key areas like climate, like pandemic preparedness, like multilateral diplomacy, if we want to expand on Secretary Powell's vision of a Foreign Service training float uh, and equip our workforce with the training, with the tools, with the technology that uh, we need for today's challenges, we need some additional resources, and those are set out in the budget. If we want to be able to swiftly stand up new missions, uh, deploy diplomats when and where they're needed, and I very much agree with the ranking member on this, uh, and make those decisions based on risk management rather than on risk aversion, uh, we need to reform the State Embassy Construction and Counterterrorism Act and the Accountability Review Board statute. Uh, that's laid out as well. Uh, if we want to rapidly scale up in response to crises like refugee surges and epidemics, while also uh, avoiding costly overhead, we need more flexible domestic hiring authorities. Uh, this is not about advancing the goals of any one administration, any one party. It's about refocusing our mission and purpose on the forces that really affect the lives of our fellow citizens, their livelihoods, their security for decades to come. So I very much appreciate this opportunity to speak today about why this matters and look very much forward to continuing to make this committee and Congress as a whole a full partner uh, in these efforts. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mr. Secretary, for your opening statement. I will start a round of questions. Um, I'll start myself. Uh, your visit to Ukraine, uh, I'm sure members of the committee will want to hear. In terms of President Zelensky's request for assistance, both militarily and otherwise, are we aligned uh, with his requests? Are we going to move forward and uh, seek to fulfill his requests? Uh, and uh, in that regard, uh, uh, what can you tell us uh, about your, your uh, several-hour meeting with him? Um, Mr. Chairman, uh, in short, yes, and let me speak very briefly to this. First, um, we started um, making sure that the Ukrainians had the equipment that they needed uh, to repel a potential Russian aggression way back before the aggression started. Uh, the first presidential drawdown was back Labor Day uh, of last year, a very significant drawdown, a second one of about $200 million uh, around Christmas time, again, well before the aggression. And then, of course, we're now on our eighth drawdown. And we have tried to focus these drawdowns on the equipment that we believe the Ukrainians need and can most effectively use right away to repel the Russians. And indeed, uh, their success is primarily because of their incredible courage uh, and determination, but it's also because we were able to equip them with what they needed. For every uh, tank uh, that the Russians have had in Ukraine, we've managed with 30 allies and partners in one way or another to provide about 10 anti-armor systems. 
For every plane that the Russians have flown in the skies, there have been about 10 uh, anti-aircraft uh, munitions of one kind or another. But as you point out, the nature of this uh, battle is changing uh, to eastern and southern Ukraine. They're adapting to that. We're adapting to that. We spent um, a great deal of time with President Zelensky, uh, the chief of his military, their, their defense uh, secretary, going through what it is they believe they need to effectively prosecute the battle going forward. Secretary Austin is in Germany today with um, representatives from, I think, close to 40 countries focused on making sure that we are either delivering ourselves or finding the countries to deliver what it is the Ukrainians need. And I can just say broadly, and we can go in more detail in a different, uh, in a different setting, I think we're, we're largely aligned in what they say they need and what we think we're able to, to provide. The last thing I'd say, Mr. Chairman, uh, we're doing this very quickly. Um, in the past, it's taken from the time a president made a drawdown decision to getting equipment into the hands of the people who needed it, weeks. Now, uh, often it's 72 hours, uh, the time, from the time of the drawdown decision to the time that equipment is actually in the hands uh, of the Ukrainians. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, based upon that, I will assume that the, we will be looking at supplemental requests because this budget uh, as you said, was drawn uh, together before. And uh, I think there is bipartisan support for such a supplemental request. Is, is that something we should be expecting shortly? Yes, yes it is. Okay. Um, and as we move forward, uh, my final question is, uh, keeping uh, our allies uh, engaged with us in putting the sanctions pressure on Russia and continuing an all-out uh, effort to try to uh, tighten the noose around Putin's neck. Uh, is it your sense at this point in time that we'll be able to keep the allies on board in the longer term? Uh, I believe so, yes. We've had remarkable solidarity to date. A lot of work went into this. Um, one of the advantages in a sense of having a, uh, a long lead into this, because we, as you know, and we told the world, we saw this coming. Uh, for some months as we were able to prepare effectively, not only in terms of the military assistance, but also in terms of getting countries together to be prepared to impose massive consequences on, on Russia. Uh, back in um, uh, October of last year, uh, President Biden got together with the leaders of France, the United Kingdom, and Germany, including the incoming uh, chancellor as well as the outgoing chancellor, and showed them in detail the information that we had about the, the looming Russian aggression. This really concentrated minds. Uh, on the need to, to be prepared. We spent uh, several months working intensely with allies and partners, including on sanctions. That's why in December, we were able to say that there would be massive consequences and mean it, know that we could back it up, and there have been. The, tr the challenge now is making sure that we not only sustain that, but that we build on that, uh, and I believe we will. Thank you. Now, let me turn to a different topic, Iran. Uh, in your negotiator um, on the Iran nuclear deal, said in back that in February, if there was no deal by the end of February, the benefits we would receive would be dramatically diminished. It is now the end nearly of April, two months later. Um, so can you give us where we're at on that? And, and importantly, can I get a commitment from you on holding an open Iran hearing uh, before the Memorial Day recess? Um, on the latter question, in short, yes. Um, we will uh, make sure that we, uh, we get that done. Um, second, uh, in terms of where we are, uh, without belaboring it, um, we inherited uh, a very challenging situation. Uh, an Iranian nuclear program that was galloping forward 
Iranian provocations uh, and uh, malicious activities that had ramped up uh, throughout the region, uh, the uh, decision to pull out of the agreement, uh, and uh, the effort to exert maximum pressure on Iran, uh, whatever the intent, did not produce results. On the contrary, it produced a more dangerous nuclear program, a breakout time that went from a year to a matter of weeks, uh, and an Iran that was acting with even uh, more destabilizing effect uh, throughout the region, including endangering uh, and, uh, and attacking our own forces in ways that uh, it hadn't before. So that's what we have to uh, deal with. We continue to believe that uh, getting back into compliance with the agreement would be the best way to address the nuclear challenge posed by Iran and to make sure that an Iran that um, is already acting with incredible aggression doesn't have a nuclear weapon or the ability to produce one on short notice. Here's the, here's the challenge we have, Mr. Secretary, because my time is running out. Please. And I've been generous and want to make sure your yeah, answers thank are full. Cool. Uh, six months, which is what I hear is the uh, ability uh, to get into an agreement at breakout time, is far less than it was a year ago, and I understand why. Mm -hmm. uh, but it will do nothing in terms of Iran's missile program, which the CENTCOM commander already says has overmatch in the region, their abilities between themselves and their proxies. Uh, it will do nothing about the destabilization of the region. Uh, and uh, at the end of the day, while I understand the breakout time now is, uh, you know, maybe a matter of publicly reported a week or two, uh, that at the end of the day, it's not going to meet the essential challenge that we have with Iran. And so it's still, it has its missile capacities, which is one of the third parts of the bomb delivery. It has the fissile material capability, whether we push it back six months or not, and recreating the sanctions regimes if it were to violate, but with the knowledge it has, that six months will be nothing. And then finally, the weaponization element of that, which is the one point that we still believe they're not at. But uh, when you look at the totality of it, uh, you know, 2022 is not 2014 or 2015. And uh, the sunsets are on the horizon, even if a deal was to be made. And that's part of the challenge that I see. But I appreciate your commitment to come before the committee, either because we have an agreement, in which case we'll testify about that agreement, or if there is no agreement to understand what is our strategy moving forward on Iran. Senator Risch. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I didn't intend to start with Iran, but I will, since that's where, where you finished. Um, Mr. Secretary, uh, you can see there is little, if any, daylight between myself and the chairman uh, on this issue. Uh, I think he has stated uh, for you as clearly and uh, concisely as he can uh, the lack of benefits of entering into an agreement at this point in time particularly as it relates to the uh, uh, bad activities of Iran, aside from uh, its nuclear ambitions. <clears throat> as I've said, I believe that, uh, that the Israelis, when they say publicly that Iran will never complete a nuclear weapon and they will see to it. The question for you is here, do you think the Iranians believe that today? Ranking Member Rish, I think that what we have seen and have assessed over many years is that um, the Iranians have sought to move forward with their fissile material program, which is exactly what the JCPOA stopped, uh, and if we were to resume compliance, would continue to stop and would buy us uh, a decade on the critical sunsets in terms of the stockpile of fissile material in terms of the enrichment level. Um, at the same time, their efforts to actually weaponize uh, 
based on, on, on public information, uh, paused, stopped some years ago. But of course, we look very carefully to see uh, if they resume. So we would be focused on this like a hawk uh, either way. But to your point and to the chairman's point, which I agree with, the agreement does not address their other uh, malicious activities. Uh, so we have two uh, premises. One is that uh, when it comes to those activities, <laughs> things would be even worse if they had a nuclear weapon or the ability to get one on short notice. It would encourage them to act with even greater impunity. Second, uh, an agreement were we to reach one does not take away in any way from our ability and determination to go at them in all of these other areas in, in concert with allies and partners. We spent a lot of time working with them on exactly that. Uh, everything from sanctions uh, to interdictions to stopping the, uh, the money flow uh, that they need to um, produce these weapons uh, and to move these weapons about, uh, all of that would, uh, would continue. Well, thanks. That didn't really answer my question directly. <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to gather from what you said that you at least have some uh, agreement with me that the Iranians do believe uh, the Israelis when they say what's going to happen if they move towards weaponization. And if that's the case, look, they're, they're going to do that. The Israelis are going to act, and they've said so, regardless of what the, the agreement says. You, we can make Could any just, agreement we want. They're going to act in their national interest. If that's the case, then we really need to focus on the other bad activities that uh, Iran uh, engages in, as were laid out uh, by the chairman. And this, uh, th this uh, agreement, I think you would have to agree, uh, doesn't cover that. And it seems to me that that's really where we ought to be focused. In any event, um, <clears throat> I, I, I come back to but no agreement uh, is better than a bad agreement, and I would, I would urge you to move on. They've given us every indication that uh, uh, that would be appropriate for us to do, and I would encourage you uh, to do that. Uh, let's, uh, let's talk about uh, Ukraine for a moment. We have an ambassador uh, in place in Russia, still on the ground, Without, uh, obviously, uh, disclosing uh, any uh, uh, classified material, what, what can you tell us about the cables that are coming back from Russia, about the conditions on the ground in Russia and what's, what's happening there, what, what people are thinking there? Can, can you enlighten us on that publicly at all? You know, it's, it's very challenging because what, um, what Putin has done over many, many years is set up, among other things, a state propaganda system that is such that whatever he says, uh, whatever he communicates, a lot of people believe, never mind the facts, never mind what's actually going on. So penetrating that information system uh, is incredibly challenging. Having said that, I think what we're seeing is that people increasingly in Russia are feeling the effects of the disastrous decision by Putin to, to attack Ukraine. For example, um, upward of 600 companies have left Russia. Uh, including many of the major consumer brands that we all know and are familiar with. Increasingly, Russians are finding the things they thought they could take for granted, uh, they can't. They can't buy the things they've been used to buying for the last uh, almost uh, 30 years. Uh, their economy is, is contracting in a dramatic way. We, look at, we see a, a, about a 15% contraction. The gains of the last uh, 15, 20 years of opening are being erased. That's being increasingly felt in people's lives. Uh, the Russians' ability to um, modernize key sectors of their economy as a result of the export controls, that increasingly is biting. They're not going to be able to do it. All of this is going to be felt more and more. But there's a, a tension between the information and propaganda system that, that Putin has set up that is very effective and uh, the actual facts. I think the facts increasingly 
will um, encroach and make themselves felt. But for now, I think what we're seeing is um, uh, Russian people, to the extent that they're informed, uh, continue to, uh, to support, for the most part, President Putin. Well, thank you for that. And I, I would encourage you to continue to tighten that screw. That, that is going to make a lot of difference uh, as far as what actually happens on the ground in Russia. You're right that at least uh, people publicly proclaim that they, uh, that they support Putin and, uh, and uh, want to go along with uh, the war effort. I'm not so sure that that actually exists privately. But well, that's it, a very it, good point it, because, to, to, to your point, there are severe penalties for doing or saying anything in opposition to uh, uh, Putin's war, including 15 years in prison. So to the extent we're able to read public opinions, some portion of that is definitely colored by the fact that people are afraid to speak their minds. And final thing is, this gets to the, the heart of the uh, Achilles heel of any autocracy, which is uh, the inability of anyone to speak truth to power. Uh, and this has severely misinformed Putin himself about what's actually going on. I appreciate that. Uh, briefly, since my time's almost up, uh, obviously uh, uh, we need to focus on China. China's the major over the over this century. China's going to continue to be the major challenge that we have, and with what we've just gone through uh, with Ukraine, I think it's uh, important that uh, we walk and chew gum at the same time and understand that the Taiwan issue is there, and that uh, we ought to be thinking about that as we go forward. And uh, obviously, the, the chairman and I have uh, worked on. Uh, bolstering Taiwan's defense. Uh, we're going to continue to do that. We look for you as a partner in that. It's certainly important uh, as we go forward. It's, it's going to be another challenge. With that, my time is up. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Senator Rich. Let me follow up first on one of Senator Rich's points, and that is what's going on in Russia. We saw that Vladimir Karamursa was just recently uh, yeah. arrested uh, following in the path of what happened with Alexei Navalny and Sergei Magnitsky, and the list goes on and on and on. So, Mr. Secretary, I hope that you'll be following that case very closely, recognizing that those responsible for his illegal detention, we do have tools available uh, on, as a result of the Magnitsky statute, and I hope that that will be considered in regards to what's happening and that we'll speak out strongly in support of Mr. Karamursa. Uh, in, in short, yes. And first of all, let me just say how much I appreciate, we appreciate your leadership for many years on this, including on Global Magnitsky, including as a part of the uh, Helsinki Commission. Um, we are very focused on this, very focused on making sure that Russia continues to be held to account for its human rights abuses, not only in, in, in Ukraine, but in, in Russia itself. Thank you. I appreciate that. Let me focus on Ukraine for one moment. Um, uh, Senator Haggerty and I have sent you a letter in regards to the subcommittee on the management of the State Department in regards to returning our mission to Kyiv. You've indicated that uh, we are trying to comply with all the requests uh, that are being made by President Zelensky. One is certainly to have our mission locate again in Kyiv. Uh, it is uh, critically important. Uh, we have a new ambassador that has been named. We would like that her to, to be stationed in Kyiv. Mm -hmm. We recognize that you are doing some work in Lviv, but Kyiv is the capital. Can you just tell us uh, your plans on returning our mission to Kyiv and whether you will uh, comply with the request we made that we have a, a briefing as to the steps necessary to make sure that our mission is safe in Kyiv? Yes. Uh, first of all, when it comes to a briefing, yes, we'll certainly uh, do that. I appreciated uh, your letter, uh, the letter from, from you and Senator Haggerty. Um, the two things. We are um, sending diplomats back to Ukraine this week. 
and they will uh, begin to assess um, how we can most effectively and uh, securely reopen the embassy in Kyiv. Uh, and I, without going into too much uh, detail in, in, in this setting, um, I anticipate that we will uh, will be in Lviv uh, and then and then head to head to Kyiv, subject to the, the president's final decision on that. But we are moving forward on that. We want to have our embassy uh, reopened, and we're working to do that. Let, let me switch to the war crimes issues. There was a report today in the, in, in the Washington Post as to the cooperation the United States is giving. I'm glad, glad to hear this in regards to the how to collect the the necessary evidence and how to uh, interview and what's necessary in order to proceed with war crimes against those who have perpetrated those in Ukraine uh, under Mr. Putin's guidance. Uh, is there, could you just briefly tell us what additional steps we need to take? We recognize we have a, a challenge in regards to the ICC, but what steps is America taking to make sure there'll be accountability for these atrocities that are taking place in Ukraine? Uh, Senator, we're working this on multiple fronts. Uh, first and foremost, we're supporting the work of the Ukrainian prosecutor general to uh, build the cases necessary. Uh, and we're doing that with um, bringing tremendous expertise uh, in support of that effort, uh, technical advice. Uh, we have people uh, on the ground in surrounding countries uh, working on this, working with the uh, Ukrainian investigators and prosecutors. Uh, we are compiling, uh, collecting information uh, that we'll share with the Ukrainians. That's one major line of effort. Uh, second, we have a commission of inquiry that we helped establish through the uh, Human Rights Council at the UN. Uh, we're supporting its efforts as well, uh, and again, providing uh, information, advice as that work moves forward. Finally, uh, we welcome the fact that the ICC is seized with this, and uh, we have in the past uh, supported uh, work by the ICC, just recently, in fact, the prosecution of a, a John Druid uh, human rights uh, violator uh, went forward successfully in part as a result of information that uh, we supplied to the ICC. We'll look to do that as well. And if there's uh, uh, anything that Congress needs to do in order to support these efforts, we recognize the challenges that you may have. Uh, so if there is a role for us to play, please let us, let us know. I think there is uh, just about unanimous support here in Congress to make sure that at the end of the day, there is accountability for these, atro these atrocities and war crimes that have been committed. Let me uh, go to the budget for one moment. Uh, you mentioned that you just recently uh, had a, close to 200 new Foreign Service officers. That's certainly good news. The budget, if I am correct, provides for an additional 570 additional personnel. We've been concerned in the subcommittee on the State Department in regards to the ability for training for our Foreign Service uh, officials. In order to do that, you have to have uh, a, a training float. Uh, we have uh, put in a 15 percent goal on the training float uh, in order that you can have individuals assigned for training without a loss of their capacity within the mission. Can you tell us how well we're doing in regards to, to meeting that objective and what additional resources are necessary in order to achieve that level? If, um, first of all, I really want to thank uh, Congress, this committee, as well as the uh, appropriators uh, last year, uh, as well as hopefully this year, into giving us the resources we needed uh, to bring in uh, a record number of new people to, to the department. And this budget uh, would fund an additional 500-plus new positions. Um, this would allow us 
uh, to have a float of about 250 uh, people, uh, which would get us to uh, pretty much where we need to be in making sure that we, we have that. This is, uh, to your point, it's something that you've, I know, uh, worked on for some time for the department. This would be an extremely meaningful way of making sure that we have the flexibility to continuously train uh, and modernize uh, the department, uh, allow people to have opportunities for uh, not only for training, but for different uh, ways to expand their uh, capacities with um, mid-career uh, abilities to come here, for example, uh, as well as to um, uh, universities, et cetera, to do that while maintaining the uh, full operations of the department. So in short, the budget that we're pr proposing would allow us to get the float that we think that we need uh, to uh, really move forward and uh, have the flexibilities for um, ensuring that we are continuously professionalizing the department. I appreciate that. This committee has passed two bills in regards to improving the training capacity at the State Department, so you need to have the personnel in order to take advantage of that. So I'm glad to see that we're on track in order to accomplish that. Next will be Senator Romney is recognized. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Secretary, it's good to see you and appreciate your uh, willingness to be here today and appreciate in particular your uh, visit to Kiev, uh, making uh, clear to the people of the world our commitment to the, uh, to the people of Ukraine and to its leadership. Um, this follows on the heels of what I, I and many others across the country had to feel was a disastrous departure from Afghanistan. And obviously the, the diplomatic and military and human crisis continues, uh, stories of hundreds of uh, people who worked with us in, in Afghanistan being murdered by the Taliban, uh, girls not being able to go to school. These things are obviously very troubling. And, and I think I and others were apprehensive about how we would deal with Ukraine, given how badly we had dealt with, uh, with the situation in Afghanistan. Uh, credit where credit is due. Uh, I, I think you and the administration deserve a great deal of credit for how well we have uh, acted, uh, providing intelligence to our allies early on, uh, collaborating with our allies to have a uni united front on uh, on sanctions uh, and uh, and our military support. I'm sure that looking back, there are things that we'll say we didn't get it exactly right, but overall, it has been a success so far and, and want to compliment you on that. I, I think it was unfortunate that one of the headlines that came back from your trip was that, that our purpose was to uh, diminish the Russian military capacity uh, that may be a byproduct, uh, but our mission there is to help uh, the people of Ukraine uh, have freedom and, and sovereignty, which they, they richly deserve. One of the great challenges that's already been mentioned is with regards to China. Uh, you know that they have a comprehensive strategy, that China's economic uh, power is continuing to rise, their military power likewise, their investments both in ICBMs over the coming years, in their navy and so forth is really daunting. Uh, they have attempted to pacify the world. They, uh, of course, monitor and and pacify their own citizenry and propagandize their own citizenry. One of the things that uh, Chairman Menendez and I uh, made part of the NDAA uh, this last year was a provision uh, requiring the administration to develop a comprehensive strategy to deal with the emergence of China as a great power. And, and your department, is, along with other departments, will be tasked with that as soon as the national security strategy is released. And, and I just want to underscore how important that is. Uh, and uh, and, and I, I do believe that we're still uh, not making the kind of progress strategic, strategically we'd like to on that front. I was concerned with the 
report about the Solomon Islands entering into a military agreement with China. That is alarming. Uh, I wonder if you have perspective on that, whether you know whether there's a military component. It is a military agreement, but will there be potentially a military presence in the Solomon Islands by the Chinese? What, what is your sense of that, and, and uh, is there a way of recovering? Thank you very much, Senator Romney. Uh, first, with regard to the, uh, the strategy, uh, we very much agree with you. And um, I will have an opportunity, I think, very soon in the coming weeks uh, to speak uh, publicly uh, and in some detail about the, uh, about the strategy. We appreciate the work that, in many ways, Congress has done to um, give us some of the tools that we need to make that strategy effective. But I look forward to having an opportunity to lay that out in some detail and then continuing to uh, refine it uh, with you and others. With regard to the Solomon Islands, yes, we share the concern uh, about this agreement. We sent a very high-level delegation to the Solomons just um, a, a, a few days ago. Uh, our uh, lead China expert at the White House, uh, Kurt Campbell, along with the Assistant Secretary uh, for the region, Dan Crittenbrink, led a delegation to the Solomon Islands. I had previously announced uh, some months ago that we intend to uh, open an embassy there that we're moving forward on. We want to have uh, day-in, day-out presence there. We're moving forward on that. The delegation met with uh, the Prime Minister. Uh, he vowed uh, publicly as well as privately that uh, there would be no Chinese military base, uh, no long-term presence, uh, no power projection capability. Uh, we will be watching that very, very closely in the weeks uh, and months ahead. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. I, I want to uh, conclude in the brief time I have with uh, 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 indicating my support uh, with the comments of, of uh, Ranking Member uh, Risch and Chairman Menendez with regards to Iran. Uh, I, I happen to believe that, that Iran will be hell-bent on having a nuclear weapon at some point, uh, that they'll negotiate and, uh, uh, and uh, delay as long as they can but the, 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 in the negotiations with us, but that they ultimately intend to have a nuclear capacity. Um, I, I do hope that that's not going to be the case, but I, I believe that in that circumstance, that, that giving into them uh, is not the right course, but instead that there needs to be a very heavy price paid uh, for them pursuing that path. Uh, and not only to uh, hope in some way to delay them or dissuade them, but more importantly, perhaps to dissuade anyone else in the world uh, from taking a path to become a nuclear power, because the cost of doing so would be uh, demonstrated by what we do with Iran. And I would encourage the administration uh, to, to once again uh, bring this matter to Congress for an up or down vote uh, for uh, a level of, of, um, of support on the part of the national uh, interest. Uh, th this is, um, I, I think, critical for not just for what's happening in Iran and the Middle East, but around the world. As, as more and more nations are looking at becoming nuclear powers, I think they have to see that the cost is enormous for doing so. Uh, and, and would hope that, that we don't in any way uh, lessen the cost uh, in, uh, in negotiations. And I would be more than happy to hear that we walked away. Iran asks for more and more and more. The answer is no, uh, and, and uh, that, that we need to show extraordinary backbone and, and make a solid commitment that America will not stand still uh, as they or other nations seek to become nuclear powers. Thank you, Senator. Uh, I can simply say that we, we share the same objective, which is to make sure that Iran never acquires a nuclear weapon. The question is, what's the most effective way uh, to do that? We've now tested two propositions. One was the nuclear agreement that was originally reached, uh, and that significantly set back uh, Iranian uh, 
capabilities to pursue a nuclear weapon, particularly the, the fissile material for such a weapon. Um, and that agreement was working by all objective accounts. In fact, now we have many uh, Israeli colleagues from the security establishment who've come out and said publicly that it was a huge mistake to pull out of the agreement because on its own terms, uh, preventing Iran from acquiring the fissile material necessary for a weapon, it was succeeding. Uh, that doesn't address the other concerns that you rightly and we rightly have with Iran, but on its terms, it was working. We've tested the other proposition, which was pulling out of the agreement, trying to exert more pressure, and we've also seen the result. And the result has been that that nuclear program, which had pushed back the breakout time to a year in terms of being able to produce fissile material for a weapon, that's now down to a matter of weeks. Their program has galloped forward, more uh, sophisticated centrifuges spinning, a greater stockpile of fissile material. And um, Ranking Member Rich was um, uh, talking about this earlier. I think it's important to, to underscore the reason the agreement originally uh, reached focused on fissile material is because this is something we can see, and with the most intrusive inspections regime ever in an arms control agreement, we could see it. Uh, and if there was breakout, do something about it. The problem with focusing on weaponization is, which we believe that they halted uh, in the early 2000s, but could resume if there's a decision to do so. The problem with that is that work happens in a, in a room a tenth of the size of this one at a computer in ways that we or the Israelis may not be able to see uh, immediately in real time, may not be able to track. Uh, and so hanging your hat on the peg of weaponization is a very risky one. That's why this agreement was designed around fissile material. And we continue to believe that uh, whatever the imperfections, if on its own terms we can get back into the agreement, it would be, of all of the answers that we have, the best one for the nuclear issue. However, uh, we're not there, and I could not agree with you more, first of all, on the overriding objective that we have, and also with both the chairman, the ranking member, and you, the need to confront Iran on its other malicious activities. It's, a, it's our understanding we'll have a, a separate opportunity in regards to the Iran agreement, and we appreciate the secretary's willingness to to work with our committee in that regard. It's my understanding Senator Murphy is available through WebEx. Uh, good morning, Mr. Secretary. Senator. Um, thank you for taking the time with us. I'm sorry that I can't be there with you in person. Um, uh, I do not share my colleagues' skepticism of a renewed nuclear agreement with Iran, in part because the whole world has watched how difficult it is to craft a Western response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, given Russia's status as a nuclear power. And I simply cannot imagine why we would wish for a policy that will allow Iran to be weeks, maybe months away from a nuclear weapon, given all of their malevolent activity in the Middle East. What about the last two months has been an advertisement that we would be better off if more of our adversaries had nuclear weapons? And I appreciate um, the clarification you made to Senator Romney's question, um, because it is true. We have tried the alternative. We have indeed attempted uh, to apply significant costs on the Iranian economy and through President Trump's maximum pressure campaign. Um, and in fact, the result was not that Iran came to the table on all of their other behaviors in the region. It was not that they held firm on the commitments that they had made in the JCPOA. It was in fact um, that they moved faster towards a potential nuclear weapon. They accelerated their research program. Um, and so I wanna maybe ask you one more sort of question to level set where we are today. You have stated, I think, very effectively that the maximum pressure campaign did not, in fact, 
um, uh, have the effect of constraining Iran's nuclear weapon program. But for my colleagues that have you know, significant concerns, rightly so, about Iran's support for terrorist organizations, for regional proxies, the money they put into their ballistic missile program. Is there any evidence that during the period of time in which we have been out of the nuclear agreement, during the period of time in which we have applied these significant sanctions, including sanctions on the IRGC, that Iran has lessened their support for terrorist organizations or proxy organizations or lessened the amount of money that they put into their ballistic missile program? Uh, Senator, to the contrary, uh, no. Um, what we've seen is two things. Uh, first, during the period of time when the original agreement was being negotiated, um, go back to 2012, through um, its um, um, entry into force uh, and uh, the time when the Trump administration pulled out, 2018, 2012 to 2018, there were virtually no attacks on uh, American presence in the Middle East. When we pulled out of the agreement, uh, when we um, imposed the uh, foreign terrorist organization designation on the IRGC, and when Soleimani was killed, and no one is shedding any tears for his demise, but I'm just stating the facts, when those things happened, the attacks on our forces, on our personnel, on our people went up dramatically. In fact, from uh, 2019 to 2020, they went up 400 percent. So uh, we've seen that uh, we've seen that effect. Similarly. And it's an unfortunate fact of life that Iran is willing to dedicate what resources it has to supporting uh, its um, uh, military, uh, to supporting its uh, various tools of uh, destabilization uh, and terror, uh, including uh, the IRGC Cuts Force, irrespective of um, where, what its revenues are from, from other sources. And so we've seen sustained support for those forces, even during maximum pressure. Again, we share the same objectives. The question is, how do we most effectively uh, reach those objectives? That's what we're concerned with. Um, well, thank you for that response. Um, and I think you will find many of us uh, on this committee very supportive of your efforts to reenter uh, that, um, that agreement. Um, let me turn to one other topic, um, and that is the, the topic of, of human rights. Um, the uh, assault on Ukrainian democracy, I think, has elevated the need for us to be incredibly consistent between our words and our actions on supporting human rights and democracy. Um, uh, you and I have had a number of conversations mm -hmm. about um, the pace of reform in Egypt, um, a country that enjoys more direct U.S. military uh, support than almost any other in the world prior to the war in Ukraine. Um, buried inside your budget request is a curious proposal. That is um, a proposal to delink human rights conditions from military aid to Egypt. Um, I worry about the message that this would send to CC, but also the world. They have made tepid progress, um, even when presented with fairly minimalist requests for reforms. Um, and I wonder why this would be a moment that the administration would be asking to separate um, the money we send to Egypt for military support uh, from um, our human uh, rights um, requests uh, and our human rights work in Egypt. Uh, Senator, first, I really appreciate your focus uh, on human rights. Indeed, it's uh, central to uh, President Biden's foreign policy, uh, and that applies across the world, uh, including when it comes to Egypt. Let me just say quickly a couple of things. First, Egypt is a vital partner for us. It's a vital partner uh, in uh, trying to um, sustain and advance uh, stability in the Middle East uh, to uh, combat terrorism. 
Uh, it uh, played a critical role last year when uh, tensions uh, rose dramatically uh, in um, uh, Gaza. Uh, and uh, it's uh, played an important role uh, now in trying to keep things um, uh, in check as well. Uh, so in many ways, it's a vital partner. It's a, also an important economic partner for us. At the same time, that does not divorce uh, from our policy and our approach the need to focus on, on human rights and the concerns that we have uh, about um, uh, the Egyptian approach when it comes to civil society, when it comes to freedom of expression, uh, freedom of assembly, uh, political detentions, uh, abuses, etc. I have engaged uh, President al-Sisi directly on this at some length, including uh, the first meeting that, that we had. Uh, we uh, continue to uh, meet and engage with uh, human rights defenders, with civil society. Uh, last year, we signed the Human Rights Council statement at the UN expressing our grave concerns for the first time since uh, 2014. And we reprogrammed some of the uh, foreign military financing uh, this past year because Egypt did not meet some of the objectives that uh, we set out in terms of making progress on human rights. Uh, and that will continue to be the case going forward. It is, however, important to us to have maximum flexibility in, um, in being able to deal with this and deal with this effectively. I'd also say that uh, going back to the conversation on, on, on Russia and Ukraine, this is a critical time, too, in a, the relationship with a number of countries, particularly countries that may be reconsidering their own relationships and potential dependencies on Russia. Uh, they're seeing how Russian military equipment is performing or not performing in Ukraine. Uh, they're seeing uh, growing challenges to Russia being able to um, sustain and ultimately export its, uh, its military equipment. They're making uh, different uh, decisions about the future. Uh, that presents a strategic opportunity for us. One, we want to make sure that we also have flexibility to take advantage of. But I completely share your uh, focus on and concern about human rights, uh, including in Egypt. It is, it will remain a central part of our policy, even as we work to strengthen what is uh, a vital partnership for us. Thank you. Well, very briefly, just, just count me amongst those who think it would be unwise at this moment to delink our human rights conditions from military aid. This is a country that still um, has more political arrests than Russia does. 60,000 people have been arrested for political crimes in Egypt. That's a stunning number. Um, and as to your point, finally, um, about countries that are rethinking their traditional association with Russia. Senator Shaheen Tillis and I are just back from a trip to the Balkans. I mm. think uh, Assistant Secretary Donfried is there this week. Um, tremendous opportunities in the Balkans to um, try to shift uh, alliances and allegiances there. Bosnia is a place where yeah. um, there is a um, uh, rapid deterioration of um, uh, the security situation. We have to pay close attention there, but um, many opportunities um, around Russia's periphery to convince folks that it's time thank for you. them to the, stop the sitting The senator's time chairs. has thank expired. You thank, thank, thank you. you. Look forward to working with you on that. And I would ask the, the clerk to make sure he starts the clock because uh, we have a lot of members who want to ask questions. Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Secretary Blinken, for appearing before us again. It's very important. You went to Kyiv um, both to meet with President Zelensky and, importantly, to demonstrate our support for the people of Ukraine. It's now been two months since the war on Ukraine began, and with our help, they're fighting with heart, with conviction, uh, with some success. And with our help, uh, we can win this thing, but it needs a lot more help. I'm glad we are returning the U.S. Embassy to Kyiv. Uh, I'm pleased the administration just appointed a Ukraine Security Assistant Coordinator. As you know, some of us had called for that. Uh, we continue um, to be concerned about some of the red tape that's involved in some of the military transfers. So this should help quite a bit. 
We must continue to address Russia's barbaric actions with speed, with urgency, and with confidence that the right weapons can contribute to a victory. The Kremlin must know that the free world stands united against them. I'm also pleased the administration has finally uh, nominated a U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. As you know, I believe this is long overdue, and I look forward to Bridget Brink's testimony before this committee as soon as possible. I want to talk to the chairman about that. Uh, energy revenues continues to be the main source of income fueling Russia's war machine. As you know, energy is their top export. In fact, receipts from, enemy account, uh, from energy alone accounts for about 40 to 50 percent of the Russian budget. We've got to cut off this funding if we want to stop the increasing uh, war effort from Russia. I was pleased that the administration banned the import of Russian oil, natural gas, and coal in the United States in early February, but that was only about 8 percent of our total uh, petroleum imports. Other countries import a lot more. The larger issue at hand, of course, is the EU and their reliance on Russian energy. Approximately 40 percent of EU gas comes from Russia, as well as more than a quarter of its oil. This means, Mr. Secretary, Europe is continuing to spend Russia roughly $870 million a day, $870 million a day in energy revenues compared to about $50 million a day the U.S. was purchasing on a daily basis. Again, money used to fuel the Putin war machine. Last month, I was pleased with the announcement of the Joint Task Force with the EU on Energy Security uh, for better coordination. It's now been exactly a month since this task force was established. Can you please provide us today with an update on the efforts and progress as it relates to reducing European reliance on Russian energy, and when can we expect a plan detailing the objectives of the task force and a strategy to achieve them? Senator, thank you very much. Can I first uh, just start by applauding your, your leadership on, on Ukraine, uh, both as uh, head of the caucus here, uh, but also just your uh, continuous engagement uh, going back uh, from uh, Munich Security Conference and well before that. It's greatly appreciated. It's made a real difference. Um, with regard to energy, uh, you're right. This is one of the, the critical areas where we have to continue uh, to move forward, and uh, we are and we will. The big challenge is, of course, uh, European dependence on Russian energy that's built up over decades, particularly natural gas, uh, but also oil. Um, and let me say a couple of things very quickly. First, the Europeans have, I think, uh, genuinely ambitious plans to move away from this reliance on Russian uh, energy. Um, the challenge is to put them into effect. And the other challenge is that in, in some cases, this is not, uh, no pun intended, like flipping a light switch. It is a process. Uh, and that's what we're working with them on, uh, on implementing. So a few things to, uh, to that end. First, I think you are likely to see in the, uh, in the coming weeks further progress on, uh, on the oil side of the equation in terms of uh, Russian imports. Uh, gas is a bigger, bigger challenge. It's particularly acute for certain countries, including uh, notably Germany, uh, but also others. We have redirected uh, significant amounts of LNG to Europe uh, in the short term to help them compensate for any losses that they might have in moving away from, uh, from Russian gas. That process is continuing, uh, and we want to make sure that as they do that, uh, there's backfill, uh, and uh, there's significant amounts that's going to that. Secretary, Second. just two, two quick, quick questions. One, with regard to the task force, when mm -hmm. can we expect a report from the task force, you know, detailing what the objectives are and what the strategy is? And then second, with regard to LNG shipments, you just mentioned that. Actually, you know, this is a central component of the initiative. The U.S. is now saying that we're going to give them 15 billion cubic that's meters right. That's right. this year, an additional 50 uh, over the next decade. 
How has the administration and the task force engaged with energy producers in the United States to follow through on these commitments? Your budget increases taxes on natural gas production. As you know, the administration continues to take steps to discourage new leasing for oil and gas development on public lands and waters. These and other policies that stifle domestic natural gas production uh, are going to make it difficult, it seems to me, to meet our objectives. So how can we keep our EU commitment and reduce this massive flow of funds into Russia? Uh, Senator, I'm not an expert on the domestic policy component of this. I will say a couple of things. First, we've doubled the LNG exports uh, to, uh, to Europe since, la since last year. Um, uh, actually, since, excuse me, since early this year, they've already doubled. Uh, the president has urged domestic producers to speed up production. There are, as you know, thousands of licenses that have gone unused, and hopefully they will be used uh, to uh, increase production. The task force, let me get, come back to you on uh, when we can anticipate uh, providing a, a report, but it's focused on uh, diversification. It's focused on curbing demand uh, and making sure that the, the backfill is there. Uh, it's also necessary to focus on um, uh, an energy transition because ultimately that's going to be the most effective way over time in making sure that there's genuine energy security. Secretary, uh, the one thing that you, I, I, that you I can't to do. Ask you, let me just say the obvious, which is that you have a strong interest in these domestic policy issues now, because to stop the Russian war machine getting all this funding, which is your strong interest, I, I know, uh, you, you're going to have to be a voice uh, for some uh, reason in terms of an all-the-above energy strategy, including not stifling uh, fossil fuels at this point, because we, we, we need them in terms of natural gas to Europe. On the coordinator, uh, Lieutenant General Terry Wolf has now been appointed. I was glad to see that, as yep. you know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted we have somebody to be there uh, as a coordinator. How is the State Department going to coordinate with him improving the arms transfer process, which is your bailiwick? And does he report to you, the President, or the National Security Advisor? Uh, Terry is someone that I've worked with for a long time. He, as you may remember, uh, was one of the lead co coordinators for the counter-ISIL coalition that was established uh, back in, uh, in 2015. Uh, 2016, we worked very closely together. We will continue to work very closely together in this effort. Uh, and uh, he'll be working both uh, w with us at the State Department as well as uh, reporting to the, uh, to the White House. Um, but we have a long history of working closely together. Let me say, just repeat very quickly something I said earlier, which is that this process of transferring equipment to the Ukrainians is um, moving, in my judgment, uh, very effect effectively and very efficiently the drawdown authorities that we've used now eight times, whereas it used to take sometimes weeks to get equipment to uh, the Ukrainians, uh, we're now getting things from the point the decision is made to draw down uh, to getting it into Ukrainian hands in as little as 72 hours. Uh, so this is moving quickly. We have cut through uh, a lot of red tape. At the same time, we've been going around the world looking uh, for other countries that may have equipment that Ukraine can find useful. When it's come to authorizing the uh, transfer of that equipment, if it has U.S. Uh, origin technology in it, I've done those authorizations in uh, 24 hours uh, or less to make sure, to your point, that we're moving things quickly. But having said all of that, we want to make sure that we continue to drive this as effectively and efficiently as possible. Terry will, will focus on that. I'll work directly with him. So will the White House. Who will General, Pentagon. Who will General Wolf report to? Who will he report to? Um, question. Let me come back to you on exactly what the reporting line is. I, I don't know what the exact reporting line is, but I can tell you that he'll work directly uh, with, uh, with me as well as with the White House and, of course, the Pentagon. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman and Mr. Secretary. Uh, welcome. Uh, thank you as, uh, for taking that trip uh, to Kiev uh, with Secretary Austin. And, and I was just listening to Secretary Austin address some of our NATO partners mm -hmm. uh, about the need to continue to push and coordinate uh, more weapons uh, into Ukraine. And I do want to uh, commend you for accelerating uh, that process um, as the war has 
gone on. Um, I want to start with a question about the Foreign Service Families Act. Uh, this was legislation that I teamed up with Senator Sullivan on. Uh, we co-chair the Foreign Service uh, Caucus here. I want to thank the chairman ranking member for working with us to include that uh, in the passage of the last National Defense Authorization Bill. Uh, it extends to Foreign Service officers some of the same benefits we extend to our military uh, folks uh, deployed overseas and also includes more opportunities for family members uh, in order to continue to attract um, and retain uh, a world-class uh, foreign service. Um, and thank you for your input as we've worked on that uh, passage. Uh, we're trying to implement them provisions now, and I'm not going to go through the entire list, Mr. Secretary, but just to give you one example, uh, the legislation allows uh, foreign service officers who are you know, getting orders to, to deploy, uh, mm -hmm. to, to go to their uh, uh, missions overseas, uh, to be able to terminate contracts, leases, that kind of thing. But in order to make that work in the real world, um, we need a system to make sure that um, you know, landlords, for example, can verify uh, that uh, a foreign service officer does have, in fact, uh, those orders uh, to go overseas. Uh, the military has uh, created a successful system to do that. Um, we've been working with your team to try and do it. I just I want your commitment that we can accelerate this process. Uh, you've got it. Uh, okay. this, first of all, um, you've been an incredible champion for the foreign service uh, for a long time. And that is appreciated very much by the um, uh, men and women of the State Department. Uh, second, we want to make sure that we are um, putting in place these necessary tools uh, and efficiencies to do right by the, uh, the men and women who, uh, who work for us. So yes, in short, we'll try to move forward on that as expeditiously as possible. Uh, thank you, Mr. Secretary. Yeah, there, there are a series of things. It's just a question of implementation. But the sooner we can get them uh, in effect, uh, the sooner the benefits uh, will flow to the men and women of the Foreign Service. I want to follow up a little bit on, on Senator Portman's line of questioning uh, with respect to sanctions and the issue of Russian exports of oil and gas and other commodities. Uh, and again, salute the administration for working with our allies to put in place uh, punishing sanctions uh, right away. And we've expanded those sanctions uh, over time. Uh, but to my knowledge, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, we've not used any of the existing authorities to date to apply secondary sanctions to institutions overseas that may be aiding and abetting uh, Russian oligarchs um, and others who may be aiding and abetting uh, Putin. Is that right? Uh, I don't believe that we have, but that doesn't mean that we won't. And thanks to this committee, we now have at the State Department a senior sanctions coordinator, Jim O'Brien, a deeply experienced diplomat, one of the things that he's looking intensely at is uh, sanctions evasion uh, by, uh, by other countries or, or, or entities. This is something that we're going to focus on uh, relentlessly as we move forward. I, I, I'm glad to hear that, Mr. Secretary, because I think leakage in the sanctions only hurts mm -hmm. uh, our alliances and, and helps uh, Putin. And I recognize that a lot of our European partners are working to reduce their reliance on Russian oil and gas, and that we're working with them to do that. Uh, and obviously, we want to accelerate that process as much as possible. What I am worried about is reports of certain countries that are increasing their imports of Russian oil and gas and commodities. Are, are you aware of countries that are doing that? Uh, we've been watching this uh, carefully, and we've engaged with some countries where we've had concerns that um, 
they might be increasing their purchases, taking advantage of discounted prices that Russia has been forced to offer in order to get anyone uh, to take this. Uh, and so in short, yes, there are a few countries that we've engaged with to dissuade them from doing that. Well, Mr. Secretary, we, we, we're, we haven't been successful at doing that mm -hmm. yet, right? Um, so uh, according to the information I've got uh, in the month of March, uh, China increased uh, its trade with Russia by, by 12% mm -hmm. um, in terms of actually additional goods uh, being imported uh, to China uh, from uh, Russia. Uh, and there are a number of other countries. The question is, you know, we made the right decision by saying that um, the United States is not going to continue to import Russian gas and oil. oil. Mm -hmm. But if that oil is just on the international market and Putin's able to sell it to somebody else, it obviously doesn't do us any good at all. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question is very blunt. Why aren't we applying secondary sanctions against countries that are increasing, that are increasing their imports from, of Russian commodities? So I'd say two things. First, where we can, uh, it is far preferable to uh, get countries to voluntarily not engage in these practices. And that's where our diplomacy is focused. Second, as we're dealing with the energy uh, piece of this, um, and again, I, I agree with the, the, the general tenor of uh, Senator Portman's uh, remarks, we have, to, we have to do it not only effectively, we have to be as smart as possible uh, about how we do it uh, and when we do it. And so, for example, we want to make sure that we are not taking actions in the near term that may have the result of spiking energy prices and thus lining Putin's pockets instead of taking resources away. So the more that we can do things voluntarily, uh, deliberately, make sure that we have the necessary backfill, including from our own sources, make sure that um, uh, energy is on the market. Uh, the president, as you know, did a historic release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve uh, on that front. Uh, we've got a million barrels a day over six months. We've got many countries to join in uh, doing the same thing. We have to do it in a deliberate way so that we don't have uh, an effect contrary to the one that we're trying to achieve. Now, I, I agree with that, Mr. Secretary. I, but, but as you point out, there, there are countries that are taking advantage of discounted yeah. Russian oil prices. That they're able to unload it at, at lower right. prices and they're taking advantage of it, which only helps Putin. Uh, just a statement in, in closing, uh, which is um, one of the consequences of Russia's invasion of, uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine has been uh, our European partners uh, have watched China's response. And I think that they've been um, uh, extremely concerned uh, with the fact that uh, China first said that, you know, we're, we're all in uh, together. Uh, I do think this is an opportunity to work even more closely in practical ways uh, with our European and other allies uh, with respect to a, a coordinated approach with respect to uh, China. I Thank very you. much agree with you. The Deputy Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman, was just in Europe for a dialogue that we established with the European Union on China. Uh, she had a very, I think, productive session with the EU. You saw uh, the results of the summit between the EU leaders and uh, President Xi Jinping, uh, which yes. I think did not um, uh, go to, ch to China's benefit because of the increasingly deep skepticism uh, about China in Europe. Uh, China is paying a reputational cost for to be charitable about it, sitting on the fence uh, when it comes to Russia's aggression against Ukraine, never mind falling on the, the, the Russian side uh, of the fence, something that it has to factor in. I think it's seeing that play out in its relationships with other countries, notably in Europe. Thank you. Thank Senator you. Paul. While there's no justification for Putin's war on Ukraine, it does not follow that there's no explanation for the invasion. 
John Mearsheimer writes that the trouble over Ukraine actually started at NATO's Bucharest summit in 2008 when George W. Bush administration pushed the alliance to announce that Ukraine and Georgia will become members. Even with this 2008 announcement, though, most analysts acknowledge that there was unlikely that either country would ever be admitted to NATO because of opposition from France and Germany. Nevertheless, the U.S., including the Biden administration, insisted on beating the drums to admit Ukraine to NATO. Just last fall, you signed the U.S.-Ukraine Charter on Strategic Partnership, which renewed a commitment to the 2008 Bucharest Declaration supporting Ukrainian admission to NATO. Knowing full well that Ukraine was unlikely to ever join NATO since it had already been 14 years since they were said they were going to become members, why was it so important last fall, before this invasion, to continue agitating for Ukraine's admission to NATO? Thank you, Senator. Um, not a question of agitating for uh, Ukraine's admission. It's a question of standing up for the basic principle that we strongly adhere to, that uh, there should be uh, and will be an open-door policy when it comes to NATO membership. These are sovereign decisions for European countries to make and, of course, a decision for the NATO alliance to make uh, in terms of making sure that a country that wishes to join uh, actually adds uh, value to NATO. But this goes to the, the heart of uh, the international system and the international order. And part of that um, is uh, a basic principle that one country can't dictate to another the choices it makes about with whom it allies, uh, its foreign policies, uh, its, um, its uh, decision or not uh, to try to engage with the European Union, uh, with NATO. Uh, the other thing and I'd yet, say is as we speak and we see the destruction in Ukraine, we also hear pronouncements from President Zelensky saying, well, you know what, maybe we might consider neutrality as a possibility. There could have been voices before this invasion, instead of agitating for something that we knew our adversary absolutely hated and said was a red line as uh, recently as last September, before you signed the agreement, once again agitating for NATO, Russia said that it was a red line. Now, there is no justification for the invasion. I'm not saying that. But there are reasons for the invasion, and I think it's added nothing. In fact, had Ukraine been in NATO, as you've advocated for and many others have advocated for, we would now have troops in Ukraine. We may still have the destruction, but we would also have troops in Ukraine. If you were to put them in now, if it's still your policy that you want them in now, we w that means American troops go. The one good thing about them not being in is the most bellicose of our members here are not advocating for U.S. troops right now. That's a good thing. We have not had advocacy for U.S. troops because they're not part of NATO. Had they been or are they to become part of NATO, that means U.S. soldiers will be fighting in Ukraine, and that's something I very much oppose. Senator, could I just say to that, because it's an, look, these, these are important uh, conversations and arguments. My judgment is different. Uh, if you look at the countries that Russia has attacked uh, over the last years, Georgia, uh, leaving forces in Transnistria and Moldova, and then repeatedly Ukraine, these were countries that were not part of NATO. Uh, it has not attacked NATO countries uh, for probably you a very could, good reason. You could also argue the countries they've attacked were part of Russia. Well, that... Uh, I, or were part of the Soviet Union. Yes, and I, fir I firmly disagree with, uh, with, with that proposition. It is the fundamental right of these countries to decide their own future and their own destiny. And I'm not here's, saying here's, it's not, here's but I'm important. saying that the countries that have been attacked, Georgia and Ukraine, were part of the Soviet Union. And, that does were, not and they Russia were part of right the Soviet Union since the 1920s. But that does, not, that does not give Russia the right to attack them, on the no contrary. No one's saying it does, were, but it they were really liberated has nothing to from do. from being part of this uh, empire by force. Let me just say this, because I do think it's important. 
if you look at why President Putin went, to, went into Ukraine this time, we took very seriously the arguments that some Russians were putting forward back last fall, that they had concerns about Ukraine's eventual membership in NATO in terms of their security posture, Russia's security posture. What would this mean in terms of the placement of uh, forces near Russia, weapon systems, et cetera? We sought to engage them on those issues in real uh, seriousness, as well as engage them on deep concerns we have about many of the things we do that undermine our security. But when everything uh, came to a head, it is abundantly clear in President Putin's own words that this was never about Ukraine being potentially part of NATO. And it was always about his belief that Ukraine does not deserve to be a sovereign, independent country, that it must be reassumed uh, into Russia in one form or another. And yet the discussions between Zelensky and the Russians have included discussions of them uh, assuming an unaligned or neutral posture. So this, that has been part of the discussion. And this is a sovereign decision for, for Ukraine to make. Yeah, but at the same time, we're all over the place, you know, thinking we're coming to the rescue, and then maybe sometimes we're not. Maybe sometimes we're agitating for something like admission to NATO that makes it worse. Maybe Ukraine has a, more of an ability to make this decision if they're not being pushed and goaded by half the members of the Senate who want them in NATO. So you know, perhaps, it is, perhaps it is not useful to be pushing them into NATO, and perhaps they will come to an agreement. But the other thing to remember about war is war very rarely ends in complete victory by either side. Um, I, I'm proud of how well the Ukrainians have fought. I'm supportive of their cause. But I would say it's very unlikely they're going to now invade, take over Russia, and depose Putin. I think the most likely and the best outcome would be some sort of stalemate, perhaps pushing them completely out of Ukraine. But even pushing out of Ukraine is still a great step from where we are now. So there may well be a negotiated peace. Would the U.S., would President Biden be open to accepting Ukraine as an unaligned, neutral nation? We, Senator, are not going to be more Ukrainian than the Ukrainians. These are decisions for them to make. Our purpose is to make sure that they have uh, within uh, their hands the ability to repel the Russian aggression and, indeed, to strengthen their hand at an eventual negotiating table. We've seen no sign to date that President Putin is serious about meaningful negotiations. If he is uh, and if the Ukrainians uh, engage, we'll support that. Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Secretary Blinken. Uh, with a seven-minute round, I'm going to start with three compliments and then get to my tougher questions about a region of the world that nobody's yet talked about, which is Central America. So, so three compliments. First, in my time on this committee and in the Senate, I have not seen an instance where the, the gap between U.S. prediction of activity and our European allies' prediction of activity was wider than with respect to Ukraine. What was Russia's intent amassing troops on the border? And we could see this going back into about October. Everyone had the same facts, but the prediction of what Russia's behavior would be from the US and many of our allies was very, very different. The compliment that I want to give you and the administration is, you know, you basically took the position with European nations that said there's not going to be an invasion. We hope you're right. But if we're right, what can we set up in advance so that if, if there is an invasion, Nord Stream 2 can be closed down, sanctions can be immediately put in place, we can pursue humanitarian and military aid. And I think that was very, very uh, adept diplomacy, recognizing that, the, that there was a difference of opinion about what 
was going to happen, you nevertheless put the plans in place before February 24 that enabled you to assemble a quite significant coalition, not only of NATO nations, but others, to, to really put pressure on in multiple domains. That's compliment one. Compliment two, um, the U.S. vaccine diplomacy in the world has been extremely successful, and this bears on a matter we're talking about now, whether in a mm. COVID bill we should do more vaccine diplomacy in the world. And I want to focus just particularly on the Americas. I took um, six of us bipartisan delegation to South and Central America in July, right at the time that U.S. vaccines were being delivered. These are nations that have felt like the U.S. has kind of ignored them. China and Russia are paying a lot of attention to them. They don't really feel like we are. But for the first time, I could really see they love the U.S. vaccines, high quality. We weren't charging them. They thought the Russian and, and Chinese vaccines were substandard quality, and they were being charged for them, and the, the shipments were being delayed, and if they happened to say something nice about Taiwan, suddenly the contract would expire. We really uh, did good work in vaccine diplomacy in the Americas. I would argue we still probably didn't allocate enough there. With 30% of the world's deaths, they only got 8% of our vaccine distribution. But we built up a lot of goodwill. And I would argue that thinking forward, it would be a really smart investment in the Americas and elsewhere if we could continue to be you know, great partners in nations that are still trying to find more vaccines. And then the third compliment is, I think it was my first hearing when I was on foreign relations, was about the ARB, the Accountability Review Board report on the Benghazi attack. And it was in 2013, and what should we be doing to provide more security for State Department personnel. One of the recommendations was dramatically increasing the security training of our FSOs. And I just had the chance last Friday to go see this state-of-the-art FASI Center at Fort Pickett and watch a final exercise. 41 weeks a year, we put cohorts of FSOs through a one-week-long security training facility that they have to repeat during their career. And it culminates with a fairly adrenaline-producing adrenaline and shocking exercise where people get to put in place what they've learned during the week so that if it ever happens on a post overseas, it's not the first time they're seeing it. And I was, I, I was in the facilities as this was happening, and even though I knew what was going to happen, I will say it made a huge impression on me. But the fact that you're investing in that kind of um, training for our folks is really important. Okay, now on to the Americas. I still don't think we're paying the attention to the region that we should. Now, this is a budget hearing, and I applaud the fact that you have sought significantly more funds for Central America to help them deal with their own issues, but also deal with this push that has led so many to leave the Northern Triangle to come to the United States. We will not deal with this migration question effectively unless we deal with root causes, but let's be honest. We've got some real weak partners there. So you've proposed to bulk up investment, um, but in both El Salvador and to a lesser degree Guatemala, we see real backsliding toward authoritarianism. The Honduran elections were fair, and there was a clear outcome, which is positive. President Castro is fairly new in. How do you propose to increase investments in the Northern Triangle to make a difference for people there and on this migration challenge when at least two of the three governments are probably getting to be less reliable partners rather than more reliable partners. Thank you. And let me just start by thanking you for the visit that you made on Friday. It's greatly uh, appreciated. Um, and indeed, we have really bulked that up, bolstered that up. We've also, thanks to 
uh, Congress been able to invest um, greater resources in diplomatic security, which plays a vital role in enabling us to, uh, to do our job. So I thank, I thank you for that. Um, when it comes to uh, our own region, uh, we and I personally have been intensely engaged um, on a number of fronts. I just came back, um, even in the midst of Ukraine, from a conference that brought together most of the foreign ministers um, in the region in, in Panama, focused on, on migration, which is obviously an immediate challenge for, uh, for, for everyone, as well as a, a long-term challenge. Uh, and we can speak more about that. But the bottom line there is, as a result of a lot of work that we've done over the last year, um, including um, getting together in, in Panama and Colombia before that at the United Nations, we are building a uh, genuinely shared sense of responsibility when it comes to dealing with what is a historic uh, migration challenge that's affecting in one way or another every country in our region, whether the countries of origin, countries of transit, countries of destination. And uh, we, are, we have now um, bilateral agreements uh, with Costa Rica and Panama with more to come. You'll, we have the Summit of the Americas, that the president will be hosting uh, over the course of a week in Los Angeles in June, uh, where um, on, on migration, I anticipate there'll be a declaration of shared principles uh, on how we work this together, but also on virtually every other aspect of the relationship with our closest uh, neighbors. Um, second, when it comes to these, uh, I could not agree with you more that even as we take near-term steps to deal with what is uh, historic migratory flow in our own region and around the world, the ultimate answer has to be addressing the so-called root causes because um, it uh, takes a lot for someone to decide that uh, they want to pick up, give up everything they know, leave their families, leave their, their, their friends, their communities, their culture, their language, uh, and make a hazardous journey to uh, the United States or anywhere else in the region. And one of the things that we've seen in our own region is the primary driver, not the only one, but the primary driver is the lack of economic opportunity. Uh, we know that. And so what we have to do is help these countries create greater opportunity. The vice president, uh, who's been leading uh, these efforts, did a call to action um, some months ago with the private sector that resulted in $1.2 billion in new investments in the northern tribal countries that will create job opportunities over time and give people uh, a means to, uh, to stay. Um, we have a series of programs reflected in this budget uh, to work in that way to create uh, opportunities for people, also to address, of course, many of the other challenges that are drivers of migration, including corruption, including poor governance, uh, including insecurity. In many cases, we have to work around um, some of the uh, governments or individual leaders. We're doing that effectively with the private sector, with NGOs, with civil society, with components of governments that we can work effectively with. Um, I think it varies from, from country to country, but we're deeply engaged on that. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Senator Rounds. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Secretary, first of all, thank you for your service to our country. Uh, let me just begin by, by bringing back in a discussion that Senator Portman began and that you have shared. I think it's been a pretty frank discussion regarding the, the need to have additional energy production and the impact that that would have on your ability uh, to work with our allies in, in Europe. It seems to me that not only does it impact the foreign policy, but with regard to our domestic policy and with regard to our economy, it would seem that the production of those products, energy products here, fossil fuels, natural gas, and so forth, uh, from North America would make your job a lot easier with regard to uh, not only 
not only would it be good in terms of, it's such a large part of the inflationary trends that we're seeing right now, in terms of the cost of supply chains and, and, and just basically the cost of basic services and transportation here. But the fact that, as you stated, uh, Mr. Putin receives significant dollars from energy and when you inflate the value of those, those commodities, that goes to his bottom line and makes it easier for him to wage war. Are you sensing that the administration or the people that you work with within the White House are recognizing the need to increase that, not just for domestic purposes, but also because of what's going on in Europe right now? Yes. Uh, in short, yes. Uh, as I mentioned, Senator, uh, just when it comes to making sure that we could try to create some flexibility for Europeans to really start this move away from dependence on, on, on Russian energy in the short term. Uh, as I noted, we've doubled our LNG exports to Europe uh, just in the past three months from where they were um, a year ago. Uh, that's significant. We're committed to, to adding to that to make sure that there is some cushion as they engage in this process. It has to be a process, though, because, as you know, this is built up over many decades. Overall, uh, European dependence on Russian gas is about 40 percent, but in individual countries, it's a lot higher than that. So that's part of the challenge. Um, second, we want to make sure that as we do this, we're doing it in a way that doesn't create the effect that you just cited, which is to actually inflate energy prices and line Putin's pockets. That's one of the reasons that the president did this historic uh, release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve um, that will extend over six months. We got other countries to join in doing that. At the same time, he has called, as you know, for incre increased production in the United States. We're doing that. And the last thing, if I could, um, quickly is this. We also have to do this in a way that does advance, in my judgment at least, the, the transition over time to renewables. Because one of the things that's true about renewables is you can't weaponize the sun, you can't weaponize the wind. Uh, and so both as a matter of climate, but also as a, a matter of strategy, uh, I think we have uh, a, a good reason to reinforce that effort, even as we're making sure that there is sufficient energy on the market now and in the, in the near term for Europeans to really start this transition. I, I think the all of the above approach it is a very good approach, yep. and I don't think it should exclude those consistent conventional energy sources that we've got, and, and, and I appreciate your comments on that. I also think the one thing that's missing in this discussion is the fact that we have to have a stable long-term plan of not having those go up, or our European allies will not trust us. If they think that our policy is going to change in six months, they're probably not going to be interested in having a short-term LNG proposal and then find out that, well, we're going to change it again. So I, and, and I think it's got to be consistent, and I think you're in agreement with that's us. A very, that. That's a very fair point. And part of the reason we have this task force with the EU is precisely to, to address that, to make sure that there's a, a long-term plan in place, not just one that meets the immediate needs. Th thank you, sir. And I'd like to change subjects here for just a minute on something that's been very important and that uh, we've been trying to work with the State Department on. Um, there was a huge a very challenging time period in which the department uh, was working on processing special immigrant visas, uh, specifically coming from Afghanistan. And, and unfortunately, this process is excruciatingly slow, and Afghans who risk their lives for our service members do remain in grave danger. For one example, uh, we have an applicant that I had brought to your attention that received a chief of mission approval the day before your September hearing. Yet he was stuck in Afghanistan until early March and just received his visa last week. This outcome would not have been even possible had it not been for his risky move 
to flee to a third country. Yet he and his family still remain in a fourth country mm. waiting for travel orders and the final resolution of an application submitted in 2018. A second individual received a denial the day of your hearing, but his appeal, um, which was submitted in December, still has not been viewed by the State Department office, which adjudicates these requests. Mr. Secretary, I and my staff have asked your people on multiple occasions if the department has the resources to execute this mission, and the answer I have always received has been yes. I just want to be specific. I, I, I'm looking to be of assistance in terms of making sure that the appropriate resources are made available. And it seems to me that right now, when we can't get these completed in a timely fashion, there's got to be a reason for it. And if it's resources, we need someone to say it's resources. If it's something else, we need to know. And I don't think we're talking about the, the issue of just we need background checks. I think there's more to it. So. Could you help us understand what the resources are that would be needed to expedite appeals within, say, 30 days? Mm -hmm. Because right now it does not seem to be working. Um, Senator, let me first start just by thanking you for your personal and sustained engagement uh, on this issue, on the SIVs in general, and on specific cases in particular. Um, it's greatly appreciated. I know it's especially appreciated uh, by the people on beha behalf of whom you've been advocating. Uh, and we want to continue to work closely with you, with your staff, on this. Let me just say a couple of things uh, about this. Um, you know, this committee knows very well the uh, very uh, laborious and multi-step process that goes into the SIV program that was legislated uh, and then uh, regulated over, over many years that involves six different agencies, not just the State Department, that has, you know, more than a dozen steps involved in it and, of course, has been made more, more complicated by the fact that we're not on the ground in Afghanistan. There are two things I want to uh, focus on. First, the process of getting chief of mission approval, um, that uh, or authority, that is the most critical step because what we found historically, well back before uh, leaving Afghanistan, was that of those who applied for an SIV, um, about 40% uh, did not uh, ultimately get uh, the uh, approval from the chief of mission because they didn't qualify in one way or another. Sometimes, uh, tragically, because the documentation necessary and required, they, uh, they couldn't produce. Um, we have worked uh, very hard to expedite that process. We have cut the processing time for chief admission approval in half in recent months. We're doing it much faster than we did when we were actually in Afghanistan, but we're looking to see if we can make it even faster. Uh, so, and we'd like to work with you on that. Second, um, a big part of the challenge that we have is for those who are in Afghanistan and actually have uh, SIVs uh, or are well along in the process and have chief admission uh, approval, uh, part of the challenge is being able to make sure that they can leave uh, the country. And uh, we're working on that day in, day out uh, to try to um, uh, encourage the Afghans to regularize uh, transportation out so that people can leave. We have a processing uh, facility now, as you know, in Doha, where we have the capacity, once someone has chief admission approval, to process about a thousand uh, a month. Um, and that uh, is there. Uh, it's, it's active. Uh, we're working on it. But we need the, the inflow, if you will, uh, to, to make that real. We have dedicated increasing resources to this. I will um, go back and triple check that I'm confident that we actually have the resources we need, given the constraints of the, the program. 
to do this as efficiently as possible. And I, I commit to you that if, uh, in my judgment, we don't, we will come to you and ask for, for more resources. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, sir. Thank you, Mr. Thank Chairman. You. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, thank you, Mr. Secretary, for the work which you are doing, and Secretary Austin, the President. Um, I think it's uh, first-class work. Thank you. Um, uh, Senator Booker and Senator Kelly and Senator Gillibrand and I visited the, um, the uh, Polish-Ukrainian border at uh, Cheshav, uh, and we saw all the work the 82nd Airborne is doing to uh, facilitate uh, the transfer of our assistance to the Ukrainians into um, uh, into that country, and it is absolutely uh, a, a first-class operation. Uh, and we were in Krakow as well, uh, and we could see the humanitarian effort in place. Uh, and again, very impressive. And I just think that in general, we should just roll out the red carpet and just say, however many Ukrainians want to come to our country, they should come here. Uh, and as a Congress, we should finance uh, that that resolve um, so that uh, we help the Ukrainians to ultimately defeat the Russians. So I just wanted to congratulate you on that. Um, I appreciate the commitment which the Biden administration uh, is making for uh, our country to be a leader in vaccinating the world, but we're falling far behind. Uh, the world has a goal of 70% uh, vaccination uh, by uh, the fall of this year. Um, that is not happening. Uh, and as we know, we're just going to be setting ourselves up for a boomerang effect in terms of it coming back to us. Um, as a co-chair of the COVID-19 Global Vaccination Caucus, I've been repeatedly calling for a significant federal investment in those efforts. Uh, we've called for inclusion of a substantial global COVID-19 response funding and any COVID-19 supplemental. That funding remains a stalled. Mr. Secretary, uh, a recent Harvard study indicated that the economic toll of COVID-19 so far is $16 trillion. Uh, we just can't afford to keep repeating history. Could you talk about how important it is for uh, the Congress to pass a global COVID relief package so that the funding is there to put uh, shots in the arms of people around the world so that once again, a variant doesn't come back to haunt us in the United States? Uh, Senator, I, I could not agree with you more, and I appreciate your comments on this and leadership on this as well as, uh, as, well as Senator Keynes. Uh, let me say a few things quickly. First, substantively, um, I am absolutely convinced this is the, the necessary and right thing to do for the very reasons that, uh, that you say, which is that um, we know that as long as um, COVID is somewhere, uh, it could produce a variant that ultimately uh, undermines everything that we've done uh, and even defeats the vaccines that we've developed or the therapeutics that we put in place. So we have, an, we have, I think, a very strong national interest and incentive to make sure that uh, we are doing everything we can to put an end to this, not only in our own country, but around the world. Second, um, what we've seen is this. Uh, the, as Senator Kane said, this has been also a tremendous benefit to our foreign policy and to our standing in the world. The fact that um, the president has committed uh, to um, donate 1.2 billion vaccines around the world, and we're now over 500 million that have actually been delivered, to do it primarily through COVAX, to make sure that it's done equitably, to do it with no strings attached, in stark contrast to uh, other countries like, uh, like China. That has inured to our benefit and to our standing in palpable ways. I get this every, virtually every place I go. So it's good for our foreign policy and our standing. But here's the challenge that we have, and it goes to your, your question. Um, right now, we have... Uh, 
a relative abundance of, of actual vaccines. What the challenge that we have is, as you said, getting shots into arms. There are in many places around the world, no more, nowhere more so than in Africa, uh, real challenges in making sure that um, there is cold storage, that there are distribution networks, that there are uh, healthcare workers uh, and other experts who can administer the vaccines to deal basically with the last mile. We also have real information or misinformation problems, uh, and that contributes to vac- vaccine hesitancy. Uh, so we need to be doing work on that. So is it, is it critical that we pass it the is, funding? In my critical. judgment, absolutely critical that we do this, because if we don't, we will not have the resources we need to see this through. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, this disease, because of global travel and trade, it's just a flight away from our country. And the more That's that correct. we build the barriers further away from us, the way we're trying to do with confronting the Russians so that it doesn't go any further in terms of its incursion into other countries, we have to do the same thing with COVID. We're not doing it. We just cannot allow uh, this Congress uh, to not fund a global vaccination program. Earlier, we heard my colleagues on the committee suggest that we should walk away from the negotiating table with Iran. Let's be clear, Plan B um, uh, is, um, is really plain bad. That's what it stands for. It means that Saudi Arabia's nuclear program will accelerate. It means that Iran's nuclear facilities that are above ground will go underground. It means our troops in the region will face increased threats, which could require sending our brave men and women in the armed forces into another conflagration in the Middle East. Secretary Blinken, you just covered this before, but before Trump and Bolton blew up the deal, how far was Iran towards acquiring enough material for a nuclear weapon? Uh, A year or more. How far away is Iran today? Um, By public record, some matter of weeks. Uh, based on experience, would kinetic or non-kinetic attacks on Iran prevent an Iranian nuclear weapon? Uh, The judgment of uh, our military over many years is that um, the military could certainly set back uh, the uh, program, but Iran would rebuild it, rebuild it uh, probably even more underground, and rebuild it a lot faster than uh, a nuclear agreement uh, would um, allow the Iranians to uh, resume Hasn't uh, Mohammed bin Salman pledged that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia would acquire a nuclear weapon if Iran did so? I think uh, the Saudis and other countries uh, have made clear in one way or another that they would be likely to pursue nuclear weapons in the event that Iran actually gets one, yes. Did the Trump administration's campaign of maximum pressure lead to an increase or decrease of Iran's attacks on its neighbors in the region? Uh, we have seen uh, whether what the causality is. People can make their judgments, but as I mentioned earlier, What we've seen uh, is this, from 2012 to 2018, when we were negotiating the agreement, then when we had the agreement and it was uh, in effect, uh, there were very few attacks uh, on our forces in the region. Uh, After we pulled out of the agreement, uh, designated the IRGC uh, and uh, killed Soleimani, um, we saw the attacks go up uh, dramatically from 2019 to 2020. They went up 400% on our personnel and our forces uh, in the region. Thank you. So it's clear, I think, to any objective uh, analysis that we just cannot listen to the same voices who rejected a good deal in search of the impossible and who preach brinksmanship over diplomacy. The Iran deal is not perfect, but it is our best path to prevent uh, Iran from acquiring the ultimate weapon to back its coercion in the region, a nuclear bomb. We're seeing right now the saber rattling uh, in Russia, Uh, because they have a nuclear program. 
Uh, we have to avoid that in Iran. The ripple effect would be catastrophic. Uh, we're either going to live together or we're going to die together. Either going Senator to Haggerty. Or we're going to exterminate each other. We have to put a new regime in place to make sure Iran does not get this bomb. Thank, thank you, Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Ranking Member Risch. And thank you, Secretary Blinken, for taking the time with our committee today. Uh, first, I'd, I'd just like to note that um, Chairman Cardin is the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on the State Department. I'm sorry, he's the chairman. I'm the ranking member. We both sent you a letter last week encouraging uh, you to reopen diplomatic relations in Ukraine. I want to thank you for, for taking the steps in that direction to do that, and I appreciate your willingness to brief us as that moves forward. So I wanted to say thanks again for that um, acknowledgement. Uh, I'd like to turn to the Indo-Pacific, if I might. Um, Recently, I led the first congressional delegation to Japan since the pandemic began in early 2020, and I was honored to be joined by Senator Ben Cardin and by Senator John Cornyn. Uh, I want to first thank you, Ambassador Emanuel, and the entire staff at the State Department for helping make that trip a success. And I also want to thank you personally for your efforts to bring home my constituent, Greg Kelly, who was wrongly detained there in Japan, and you were very helpful in making that happen, and um, it makes a, it made a very big difference. So thank you. Mr. Secretary, for that. During our week in Japan, our Senate delegation met with Prime Minister Kishida, Prime Minister Kishida with his senior uh, officials there. We met with former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. We met with, with a number of Japanese parliamentarians and also with leaders of some of the most formidable and, and innovative companies in the Japanese private sector. In each of our meetings, we saw a great deal of promise uh, in terms of the United States' ability to further strengthen our alliance with Japan. And they want an increasingly special relationship with us, and we see that possibility. Secretary Blinken, I think you would agree with me that the U.S.-Japan alliance is one of our most important strategic and special relationships. I would, absolutely. And amid Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Japan has shown leadership and proactively supported the international pressure campaign against Vladimir Putin's war machine. I also want to note that Yoshimasa Hayashi, uh, your counterpart there as a foreign minister, became the first Japanese foreign minister to attend a NATO ministerial when he traveled to Brussels on April the 7th. And as other international conflicts and crises emerge, I believe the United States will need to be even more aligned and move in lockstep with our ally Japan. Um, there's a real appetite that I could sense there to do that with us. And I would like to encourage you along those lines to, to see that the United States can proactively ensure that Japan, as the world's third largest economy after the U.S. and China, can, can be a pillar of peace and security. Um, they, they always would like a seat at the table in discussions on how we can increase multilateral pressure. And, and if we can include them in as many critical issues as we can, I think it will go a long way to deepen that relationship. Um, after Foreign Minister Hayashi broke new ground by attending the NATO ministerial in April, would you support the United States exploring opportunities for Japan and NATO to have further high-level interactions and more more formal information sharing? Yes, uh, absolutely. And, uh, and I want to address that just a little bit more. But first to say thank you. Uh, you have been uh, an extraordinary leader in building this relationship, first as ambassador to Japan and now as a member of this committee. I could not agree more uh, on the uh, strategic imperative of this for us. Yep. This partnership is vital. And as you said, Japan has stood up in remarkable ways mm -hmm. uh, on the Ukraine crisis. When it comes to uh, NATO, Japan, uh, we're doing a, a few things. Um, first, one of the things we have been um, advancing is um, increasing NATO focus on working with partners that are not part of NATO, including uh, what we call the Asia-Pacific Four, and that, of course, includes mm -hmm. Japan. We just had a foreign minister's meeting of, uh, of NATO where we had uh, the AP4, including yep. uh, my, uh, my good friend and colleague, 
uh, the foreign minister, yeah. at the NATO summit that the president will attend, yeah. uh, the AP4 and Japan uh, will be there. Yeah. Um, the president's going to have an opportunity, I think, in the coming weeks uh, to, uh, to visit. I think his first actual visitor was the f- former prime minister, Suga. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something we're very focused on and really are eager to continue to work with yeah. you on. By I the way, I'm very glad that Rom uh, received you in the appropriate fashion when you were in the- Oh, he absolutely <laughs> did. And he and I agreed that he would work hard to deliver Greg Kelly at the airport, and I would be on the other side to receive him. And with your help and the help of many others, that's exactly what Glad happened. So I very, very much appreciate that. If I could turn just, to, just a little bit more to, to the role that we're playing to advance the, the vision of a free and open Indo-Pacific, I support the Biden administration's efforts to build on that legacy, including the AUKUS uh, agreement that really enhances trilateral security between Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Uh, I was very glad to see that NSC coordinator for the Indo-Pacific, Kirk Campbell, and your Assistant Secretary for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, Ambassador Dan Crittenbrink, recently led an interagency delegation to the Solomon Islands and met with both ruling party and opposition party members. I appreciate those actions, and I sincerely hope that our efforts can help the Solomon Islands reach the right conclusions that granting China a military base in the middle of the Pacific Ocean would really undermine the security and stability of the entire region. Um, During our congressional delegation visit to Japan, many of our Japanese interlocutors, both the Japanese government side and the business side, expressed concerns about the broader trends in the Indo-Pacific. Our bipartisan delegation sought to instill confidence and optimism that the United States remains committed to advancing the vision of a free and open Indo-Pacific. And amid recent international shocks, I believe the United States should really work to strengthen energy security in the Indo-Pacific region, particularly among the Quad countries. Um, Like the rest of the world, the Quad countries seek reliable access to cost-effective sources of energy. Energy security is inextricably inextricably linked with economic security and national security. Uh, I worked on this a great deal in my previous uh, position. Uh, When I served at Embassy Tokyo, I worked on the Japan-U.S. Strategic Energy Partnership. They call that JUSIP. The idea there, the goal, to promote universal access to affordable and reliable energy in the Indo-Pacific. The Quad should have a similar mechanism, in my view, to strengthen energy security in the Indo-Pacific, especially since the Quad includes Japan, which is the world's third largest economy, India, the world's most populous democracy, and Australia, which is a significant industry exporter. And I'd just like to ask you to consider um, supporting the idea of the Quad standing up a working group on energy security that would help ensure reliable access to cost-effective energy sources, especially from like-minded partners. Thanks a really uh, interesting idea, Senator. I'll take, I'll take that back and then uh, come back to you on it. Yeah, and I, I, I'd be happy to work with your team and share the experience that I had earlier, but I do think that there's a, a, a real opportunity, but also a concern right now. Mm-hmm. And the Japanese reflected the concerns in, in a very blunt term to me because I worked hard to get them positioned, particularly with billions of dollars of infrastructure investment to bring in more LNG to that area. Uh, they see a, a worldwide market. They see the challenges that Europe is facing being dependent on Russia and LNG from there. They're very concerned that there could be, in some respect, a diversion of, of, of exports that would be harmful for mm-hmm. them. So I think a focus and, a, and an intent focus there, are, again, assets in the region that we could help with, but I think it would be extremely helpful. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Schatz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Secretary, thank you for being here. Um, let's stay in the Pacific. Um, I want to follow up on the uh, COFA negotiations, the U.S. agreements with the freely associated states uh, expire soon. Uh, The current agreements with the RMI and FSM expire in 23, and the agreement with Palau expires in 24. JO estimates that the assistance that the United States provides uh, constitutes about one-third 
of FAS's annual budgets, making them heavily reliant on U.S. support promised through the current compacts. Um, and as you know, the FAS's uh, countries and island uh, nations um, are aligned with us, but that that's not a permanent situation. Uh, Senator Rubio and I wrote a letter expressing some concern about the pace of negotiations, mm -hmm. especially since, you know, you are you're dealing with small nations, but they are nations. So, and, and you're dealing with the, your own Department of Defense. So, can you reassure me that we are either on track or about to be on track? Uh, for for compact uh, renegotiation and ratification, 23 and 24? Uh, Senator, in short, yes. This is something that, that I've been focused on. I've met with the, uh, the, the leadership in a variety of ways at Marshall Islands, Micronesia, uh, Palau. Uh, I was in, uh, uh, in the region uh, just a, a couple of months ago. We have um, appointed uh, a very experienced diplomat, uh, Ambassador Zhou Yun, as the negotiator for this. I know you, uh, you know that. Uh, we're very focused on the uh, pieces that expire in, in FY23 and FY24. I want to make sure that these uh, get done. We need support from uh, from Congress for this. There may be some uh, appropriations, as you know, that go uh, that need to go along with this. But I'm committed to uh, to getting this done. Uh, we have, I think, a uh, a longstanding um, obligation slash responsibility. It's also in our strategic interest um, uh, to do this. So uh, I look forward to working with you to make sure that we have what we need to try to bring this to. Uh, to closure uh, as rapidly as possible. Thank you. Um, back to NATO. Um, Article 6 of the NATO Treaty states in part that, quote, for the purpose of Article 5, an armed attack on one or more of the parties is deemed to be to include an armed attack on the territory of the parties in Europe or North America, on the Algerian Department of France, on the territory of Turkey or on the islands under the jurisdiction of any of the parties in the North Atlantic area north of the Tropic of Cancer. Um, hmm. The 1949 treaty excludes Hawaii. Now, if Hawaii were ever attacked, it is an attack on the free world. I don't have any doubt that the entire free world would rally to our defense, but this is no small problem. Alaska is covered all four... All other 49 states are covered. Um, Hawaii is not covered because statehood came afterwards. Mm. What are we going to do about that, Mr. Secretary? Uh, well, you're, you're right about uh, Article 6 of the, uh, of the treaty. It does define the alliance area exactly as, as you suggested. I think a, a few things. Um, first, to emphasize the most important part, any attack on the United States or its territories, even if outside the geographic scope uh, of Article 5, uh, would almost certainly, of course, draw our reaction, but would almost certainly, in my judgment, draw allied reaction uh, to include via the, the consultation procedures that uh, exist under Article 4 of, uh, of the treaty. I'm very confident about that. I think um, an effort to, for example, amend the treaty to cover Hawaii and or um, uh, other U.S. territory would be unlikely to gain consensus uh, because we're not the only ally, as you know, that has territory that is outside the geographic scope of, uh, of Article 6. Uh, so this would open uh, something of a Pandora's box that I think would be very difficult to, uh, to get a, a safe landing on because so many other allies have territories that would then potentially claim to want to be covered. Uh, so I'm not sure that we could get there. I would um, also you know, refer you to our colleagues at, uh, at DOD to talk about um, military considerations raised by this question. But the main thing I want to emphasize is 
I am very confident, of course, not only about our own response, but also confident about the response of allies and partners were something of that nature to happen. So am I. Um, but I'm not satisfied with your... I understand the Pandora's box argument, and you're probably right. But there's got to be something in between leaving this alone mm-hmm. and, and endeavoring to, to, to change it in a failed way. Look, we're the 50th state. We ought to be covered. And if we can't amend Article 6, then we've got to do something here. And so let's... I'm, Let's I'm happy to have the conversation and see if there are, are ideas that, that make sense. Thank you. Um, during a March 2021 SFRC hearing, you asked, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, I asked, excuse me, this is from my staff, uh, uh, I asked the Sec- Deputy Secretary of State about integrating uh, an emphasis on climate action throughout the department, and he replied that it's not just going to be Secretary Kerry's team um, can you update me on how the department is fully integrating climate action throughout the organization? And I'm specifically interested in the extent to which we can depoliticize climate action. Climate adaptation seems to be a space where we can all work together. And I just don't think American foreign policy and the State Department as its instrument um, ought to be swinging wildly back and forth on the question of whether or not the sea levels are rising or whether or not storms are becoming more frequent and, and severe and whether or not the United States should continue to lead in this space. And so I'm wondering what you're doing to institutionalize climate action throughout the department. Thank you. Um, first, we thought that it was vital not only to uh, institutionalize but to um, elevate uh, climate and everything that we were doing. And the reason that the, the president asked um, former Secretary Kerry to take it on was to do exactly that, to make sure that as we um, headed into uh, an incredibly challenging period, um, that we were um, doing everything possible to re-engage the United States in leading these efforts. And we did, through uh, re-engaging uh, Paris, uh, through the summit the president held, uh, through COP26 and the successful parts of, uh, of that endeavor, through sustained diplomacy that John Kerry has been leading. But uh, to your point, we also wanted to make sure that this is uh, truly institutionalized throughout the department, and we're doing that in a number of ways. First, every um, regional uh, bureau um, has uh, within it someone who is uh, focused and expert on these issues and is fully coordinated with the, the climate office that, uh, that John Kerry is, is, is leading to make sure that in all of our engagements with uh, allies, partners, and those who are not, um, the climate issues are very much part of the, uh, the agenda. And that's been uh, institutionalized. Second, we have a, a bureau, uh, OES, that uh, as a general matter is the locus of focus, um, if I can, on, on climate. We have very strong leadership uh, of that bureau in Monica Medina, who's been partnered closely with John Kerry on a lot of these efforts, that bureau uh, and its work uh, will, uh, will continue uh, well into the future. Uh, but we're also making sure as well as part of our, our training uh, and the efforts that we're putting into that, uh, that climate uh, factors in and features in so that as officers, no matter where they're serving, uh, take on their responsibilities, this is part of their, their thinking. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Secretary, See welcome. Uh, let's talk Iran. Uh, as you know, Iran is the world's top state sponsor of terrorism, and the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps is their premier terrorist organization. As the State Department noted in 2019, Iran is an outlaw regime that uses terrorism as a key tool of statescraft, 
and the IRGC has engaged in terrorist activity or terrorism since its inception 40 years ago. And the IRG's support for terrorism, quote, is foundational and institutional. The IRGC has killed over 600 Americans in Iraq. They control vast parts of the Iranian economy, and they use them for financing terrorism. Right now, the IRGC is actively trying to murder additional Americans, including former Trump administration officials. We know from public reports that the State Department spends $2 million every month protecting former officials, including former Secretary of State Pompeo. And the Secret Service is providing similar protection to protect former National Security Advisor Bolton. Because of such activities, the Trump administration rightly designated the IRGC as a foreign terrorist organization, an FTO. As you know, the FTO designation is the most powerful we have. It includes a criminal prohibition on knowingly supporting the IRGC up to life in prison. It imposes vast immigration restrictions. It allows victims, including the Gold Star families of those killed in Iran, to sue for civil damages from such support. And just as importantly, it is a signal to our allies in the Middle East and across the world that we will use our most powerful tools to counter the threats that Iran poses to them, including existential threats. The Iranian regime knows all of this, of course, which is why they have refused to re-enter a nuclear deal unless the Biden administration agrees to lift the FTO designation. According to public reports, the negotiations have stalled over this issue. To advance the talks, American negotiators and the Biden administration officials have tried to find ways to rationalize meeting Iran's demands. You yourself have downplayed concerns over such a move by saying the IRGC would remain designated under other weaker sanctions. Back in Vienna, American negotiators have also reportedly asked Iranians to make commitments to stop conducting terrorism in exchange for removing the FTO, and specifically to stop trying to murder former American officials. According to these reports, the Iranians told you no. I have to admit it is flabbergasting that the Biden administration would take such Iranian commitments at face value, let alone consider dismantling terrorism sanctions. But I want to ask you, is it true that American negotiators made specific requests for a commitment that the IRGC will stop trying to murder former American officials, and is it true that they said no? Uh, Senator, I'm not going to get into the details of any discussions or negotiations in a uh, public forum. Happy to come back and talk uh, privately uh, about that. Uh, let me, but let me address a few things that, uh, that you've raised because I do think uh, that they're important. First of all, uh, I share uh, your views on uh, the IRGC and especially uh, a number of its component parts, notably the Quds Force, which is primarily responsible for the uh, egregious actions that it has taken in terms of targeting Americans and, as you rightly say, uh, continuing uh, to do so. Uh, so we very much share that, uh, that view. I, I agree with you. Um, we have, over the course of this administration, uh, of the sanctions we've issued, um, 86 of the 107 um, designations by this administration have been against the IRGC or its component parts, again, for the reasons you cite. 
And none of this is inconsistent uh, with uh, the uh, nuclear agreement, whether it was in force uh, or not in force. Um, there are myriad sanctions, as you know, as you've cited, against the IRGC uh, in one way or another, both the entity as a whole, its component parts, individual members that will remain on their books irrespective. Uh, but there are a few other factors that are, that are worth at least considering. Um, and I'll come to the bottom line in, in a moment if I can. Uh, first, when the question of designating the IRGC as a whole first came up during the Bush administration many years ago. Uh, Mr. Secretary, as you know, we, we have limited time. Well, no, but it's So, it's so I'm going to try to focus on the specific question yeah. I asked. So the, let, so let, let, let me start off with this. Is it true that the IRGC is actively trying to murder former senior officials of the United States? I'm not sure what I can say in, uh, in an open setting, but let me say generically that there is uh, an ongoing threat uh, against um, uh, American officials, both present and, uh, and past. Is it true that the State Department is spending roughly $2 million a month to protect those officials? And we are, make, we, will, we are making sure, and we will make sure, for as long as it takes, that we're protecting our people, present and former, if they're, if they're under threat. And, and I'm assuming you would agree that attempting to murder a Secretary of State or a former Secretary of State is a pretty damn big deal. Uh, I would certainly agree with that. Yes. There have been multiple public reports that we asked them to make the simple promise not to murder a former Secretary of State, and they refused. There's nothing classified about that. If they are actively refusing, saying, no, we're going to keep trying to murder your former Secretary of State, the idea that our negotiators are sitting in Vienna saying, okay, that's great, so how many more billions can we give you? That doesn't make any sense. So I just want to know the factual question. Did you ask them, stop trying to murder the former Secretary of State, and did they sit there and tell you, no, we're going to keep trying to murder him? Of course, uh, within the uh, context of any engagements that we have, directly or indirectly with Iranians, one of the strong messages we send to them is they need to stop targeting our people, period. And here, here are the facts, as I mentioned a, a few minutes ago. But did they tell you no? Um, again, I'm not going to characterize what they said. They know what they would need to do to address this problem, and that's pretty straightforward. Uh, but we've seen these attacks go up 400 percent from 2019 to 2020. Uh, after we got out of the nuclear agreement, after we designated the IRGC, uh, after we killed Soleimani, from whom no one is shedding any tears. Those are the facts. We have to deal with the facts in terms of what represents a threat to our people and how we can most... Let me ask a final that. question, just because my time has expired. Please. On a topic you and I have talked a great deal about, Nord Stream 2, we've finally gotten to sanctioning Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 1 continues to deliver an enormous amount of natural gas. Stopping Nord Stream 1 would benefit our Ukrainian allies significantly. What are we doing to urge Europe to stop taking deliveries on Nord Stream 1, uh, which in turn would benefit Ukraine substantially? Senator, we're working across the board to help Europeans move away from dependency on Russian oil and especially on Russian gas, including gas that's coming through Nord Stream 1. Uh, I'm glad we got to where we got uh, on Nord Stream 2. Uh, I think we went about it uh, the right way. We did it in a way that kept uh, the Germans fully uh, allied with us. They made that decision, as you know, like that after the Russian invasion. That's been very, very meaningful. And we're looking across the board at steps that we can take to support them as they continue to move away from a reliance on Russian gas, wherever it's coming from, including the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. Thank you. Senator thank you. Merkley. Thanks. Mr. Secretary, uh, thank you for being here today. I'm going to touch on a number of issues uh, very quickly. I'll submit follow-up questions, and I, then I want to turn to, in terms of your thoughts, uh, address transnational repression. First, on Burma, thank you for the genocide determination. 
I know that uh, that was a long, uh, lengthy, complicated process, um, but you did reach, the State Department did reach a conclusion. I think it's incredibly important for our position in the world that when genocide occurs that we call it out uh, clearly and effectively. Otherwise, the other times that we criticize human rights, it's, it's ineffective. I will follow up uh, in questions regarding some of the, the budgeted funds for Burma. I want to make sure they're going to support civilian groups and in no way assist the, the government of that, that country. Uh, second, uh, uh, turning uh, to Honduras, uh, thank you for the strategic dialogue that was uh, begun yesterday and, and will continue in regards how to support their anti-corruption agenda and in general how to support the, the resetting of, of that relationship. Congress sent a strong message by zeroing out the uh, foreign military financial assistance to the Northern Triangle countries and making 60% of the rest contingent upon uh, completion, implementation of an anti-corruption agenda. This is, if we don't tackle the corruption successfully there, we will not successfully uh, uh, address any of the issues we're trying to, uh, to help with. Uh, third, um, Uyghur Force Labor Protection Act. I'm very pleased to partner with my colleague from Florida, Senator Marco Rubio. Uh, to do that, I know the, the administration is asking for more funds to, uh, to implement it. I uh, support that. Thank you very much. Ethiopia, we pressed hard to get the truckloads of food into Tigray province. Thank you for doing that. Uh, there, finally, there were su three successful convoys in, in April, but they amount to uh, 200 truckloads. We're told there needs to be 2,000 uh, per month, uh, that there are some 700,000 families in famine-like condition. Please keep pressing hard. They need to get those convoys through basically every couple days in order to uh, alleviate uh, that, that famine. Uh, Philippines, new election is coming up. I am pleased that we have not supported the Philippine National Police. Uh, there have been some uh, estimated 20,000 extrajudicial killings, um, really violating human rights in a massive way. We have a chance to reset that relationship with the upcoming election. I know you're aware of that. I know your team's working to prepare for that. Uh, thank you. Uh, I echo my, my colleagues' uh, statements of support uh, for your actions on, on Ukraine. I will follow up in terms of our help for very poor countries uh, affected by the increased costs of, of wheat uh, and uh, fertilizer. Uh, that will be profound reverberations. Um, and, uh, and then I will follow up a lot on, on climate issues. Mm -hmm. Complicated world, many things to touch on. But I wanted to take your time today on a topic that I didn't hear addressed, uh, and that is transnational repression. We are seeing more and more countries engaged in retaliation uh, for both what companies do outside of their borders, what countries do, uh, what individuals do, uh, basically compromising freedom of expression, uh, freedom of assembly, those nations include China and Turkey and Russia and Saudi Arabia and Iran and Rwanda and a couple dozen more at a, at a lower scale. It's a growing strategy of authoritarian leading, leading countries to not just use uh, new technology, surveillance technology for repression at home, but to do repression abroad. The worst country in this regard is China. And, uh, Think about kind of this long list of things that, that they, have, they have done. They took up uh, economic measures against Mongolia for hosting the Dalai Lama, South Korea for deploying a U.S. missile defense, Canada for Huawei's uh, 
arrest, the arrest of the Huawei CFO, uh, to Sweden for uh, giving a human rights prize to a Swedish dissident under detention in China, Taiwan for refusing to acknowledge that it's part of China, United Kingdom for supporting pro-democracy protesters, uh, Australia for calling for an independent inquiry into the origins of COVID, Lithuania for establishing a Taiwanese representative office in its capital, and that list goes on. Then, in terms of individuals, the China Commission held a hearing, and we heard from folks uh, from Hong Kong, uh, from Tibet, from Xinjiang province, talk about the impact on their families uh, being impacted. And just to give you one example, uh, there is a Uyghur activist who had encouraged the development of mother tongue schools. Uh, his name is Abdulwali Ayoub. And, um, Initially, there was some significant support for this concept, and then China evolved its policy and said, we don't want these native language schools. We want to force everyone into, if you will, the, the major Chinese uh, uh, dialect. And uh, he had to uh, flee to, to Norway. Uh, his um, uh, in-laws uh, were threatened. They were pressured to bring their daughter home, his niece home, uh, back to China where she was detained and she died in detention. Uh, the parents were threatened with imprisonment if they said anything to the world about her, her, her death. Uh, and I just was amazed that his courage to continue to speak out against repression with his family being threatened. It's an incredibly effective tool. So we see China undertaking these massive strategies, both with trade policy and with deliberate strategies uh, targeting um, dissidents abroad and family members at home. Huge threat to the vision of, of democracy and uh, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. Um, big issue for the State Department to undertake. Could you expand on, on, on your efforts? Yeah. Thank you, Senator. Uh, first of all, uh, let me say I appreciate the, uh, the comments you made uh, uh, briefly about Burma, about Honduras, uh, about uh, Ethiopia, about uh, the Uyghurs, uh, and also about food security, all things that we look forward to coming uh, back to you with and, and on, because all very important, very much the focus of what we're doing. I very much share uh, your concern about the growing practice of using uh, tools of transnational repression uh, to um, attack those in one way or another who are speaking up, speaking out uh, on behalf of human rights, on behalf of democracy, on behalf of uh, basic freedoms. Um, we put in place uh, a number of measures to, uh, to try to address this problem. You'll recall that with uh, regard to Saudi Arabia, for example, uh, the so-called Khashoggi ban uh, specifically goes not just uh, with regard to Saudi Arabia, but around the world, goes at countries that uh, engage uh, in, this, uh, in this practice uh, to include um, uh, visa bans, to include sanctions, uh, so that if they are trying uh, to uh, use tools of transnational repression, uh, we have means to, uh, to go at them. Um, more broadly, uh, we're seeing this, uh, as you've rightly cited, uh, being used uh, in different ways, uh, in, different, in different places. This is very much a part of the conversation that we're having with other uh, like-minded countries who share the concern, and we are looking at tools that we can put into place to push back effectively uh, against this. You cited the example of, of Lithuania and China using coercion uh, with, uh, with Lithuania. Um, I think we've um, uh, supported them along with uh, other countries in the European Union uh, effectively to, um, to help them resist. We had a summit for democracy, as you know, uh, a few months ago. 
Um, part of that was doing uh, exactly what you suggest, which is developing tools for pushing back um, against this kind of coercion and um, providing support to those who may be on the receiving uh, end of it. So I'm happy to share with you some of the specific uh, initiatives that we're working on with other countries to try to, um, uh, in effect, arm ourselves and others against this practice. Thank you. Senator Barrasso. Thank you. Uh, thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Secretary, welcome back from Ukraine. You have uh, obviously dealt with issues relating to energy, and you've heard a lot from the members of the Republican side today energy, the way Russia uses energy as a weapon and the impact it has brought to Ukraine. Uh, Senator Rounds asked a question on energy, and you stated that we need to accelerate transition to renewables. And you said you can't weaponize the sun, can't weaponize the wind, but you also can't run a modern economy on sunshine and, 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 the, and whether it's a windy day or not. And I just say from the first days in this administration, the Biden administration has failed to prioritize energy security, which I've always said is part of our national security. Now, under your leadership, the State Department is looking to cut deals with dictators in order to access more energy resources. Uh, the State Department is in negotiations to remove sanctions on Iran's energy sector as part of the Iran nuclear deal. The State Department officials have traveled to Venezuela to meet with uh, Maduro to discuss removing sanctions to access additional crude oil. Uh, you called, personally called on OPEC Plus to increase production to, quote, stabilize global energy markets to make sure that there remains an abundant supply of energy around the world. Your State Department then went to Qatar and other foreign countries to ask them to export more liquefied natural gas to Europe. All of this happening at the same time that the administration that you serve on has made it harder to produce American energy. And I heard about it again this week uh, back home in Wyoming. To me, energy security is critically important. Our adversaries would love to see us even more dependent upon them to meet our own energy needs at home in America. Um, I think we should not be removing energy sanctions on brutal dictators. It's unacceptable to bankroll the terrorist activities of Iran. It's a mistake to go to Venezuela and ask for more energy. And I think it's dangerous to rely on Russia for energy resources, in oil, gas, coal, and, and uranium. I think we need to increase production of American energy resources. So our nation has plenty of energy to power our nation and to provide our allies and friends with a stable energy supply. So could you just explain why the administration is more focused on buying energy from our enemies than finding ways to increase American energy exports and production here? Thank you, Senator. Um, a few things. First, uh, we're focused uh, primarily in the near term in making sure that there are abundant supplies of energy uh, on the world markets to our benefit, to the benefit of American consumers, uh, so that uh, prices in, uh, are held uh, in check. Also to help Europeans uh, you know, make this transition, especially in the midst of uh, the Russian aggression against Ukraine. And we want to make sure that we're doing that in a way, uh, as I said, that doesn't uh, spike prices and line President Putin's pockets. Uh, so that makes, uh, I think, good sense. Uh, we've taken a number of steps, as I mentioned, uh, to um, uh, support this effort, including doubling our LNG exports to Europe just in the last uh, few months. The president has called as well uh, for increased domestic production. Uh, as you know uh, well, there are thousands of licenses that have not been used that exist. Uh, and uh, we'll see if, uh, if production increases as a result. Um, and as, as, it, as it comes to renewables, uh, we've been very clear all along that this is a process and a transition. It's not uh, flipping a light switch. Uh, and so we have to have abundant sources of, uh, of energy of various kinds uh, going forward, even as 
uh, we make the transition. There are tremendous opportunities over time in this transition, uh, particularly when it comes to American technology uh, in leading this, uh, this effort and having vast new markets. But it is a process, it's a transition, and we need to make sure that we have abundant supplies of energy on the market. When it comes to um, other countries, uh, first of all, with regard to Venezuela, uh, the visit to Venezuela was made um, with uh, the objective of getting uh, released um, uh, Americans who were being um, unjustly detained, and in fact, we were able to bring home two uh, of, uh, of those Americans, as well as to press uh, the Venezuelans to re-engage in, uh, in talks with the United Opposition uh, on moving back to uh, free elections and, uh, and democracy. That was the focus uh, of the visit. Um, and uh, with regard to uh, Iran, the purpose of the negotiations uh, with Iran is to see if we can get uh, the Iranians back into compliance with the uh, Iranian nuclear agreement, which has clear benefits uh, to the United States and making it much more difficult for Iran to get fissile material for nuclear weapons. That's the purpose uh, of that engagement. The purpose is not uh, to get more Iranian oil uh, on the markets. Let me, let me move to the, the, the crisis at the southern border. Uh, last month, 220,000 illegal immigrants apprehended at the U.S.-Mexico border. 2021, after President Biden was sworn into office, 1.9 million apprehensions, currently on pace for 2 million this year. Uh, President Biden tasked the vice president with addressing the crisis at the southern border. President is talking about removing Article 42 because apparently COVID is behind us, although since you started testifying this morning, there's been uh, news reports that Senator Wyden, Senator Murphy from this committee, and the vice president are all right now with COVID. Hmm. So, you know, during the vice president's visit to Guatemala last year, Vice President Kamala Harris sent a message to illegal immigrants attempting to enter the United States. She said, I want to be clear to folks in this region who are thinking about making this dangerous trek to the United States-Mexico border. Do not come, do not come. She went on to say, I believe if you come to the border, you will be turned back. Well, do you agree with those statements by the vice president that if you come, you will be turned back? Uh, I would agree. If, if people come to the border and can't show uh, a legal basis uh, for coming into the United States yeah. under asylum or, or, or uh, other rules, uh, they will be removed. That is, that is the policy. And let me just say, when it comes to Title 42, as you know, Senator, this is a CDC authority. It's not immigration policy. So uh, the CDC will make uh, its judgment. Uh, they made a judgment to terminate um, the uh, Title 42 next month. But if that happens, um, as I said, what will happen as a practical matter, if people come to the border uh, and uh, try to get in without uh, the uh, necessary uh, legal basis to do so, they will uh, be sent away. Well, and that's not happening, and it's not going to happen. And that's how you go from more illegal immigrants coming into the country in the first 14 months of President Biden in office than over the previous four years with President Trump in the White House. And now we're at a point where we're facing a crisis that the administration appears to be sending a different message with this revoking Title 42. I think it's an important border control tool. It is a critical border control tool, as you mentioned, as a public health to protect the public. Uh, it's going to result, what we're going to see, I think, is a massive surge. The head of Homeland Security from this administration said they're not prepared. The head of Homeland Security from President, uh, from President Obama's term said we're not prepared to handle what's coming this way. So Elizabeth Warren explained on CNN this weekend, and Mr. Chairman, this will be my final question. Uh, she said the Biden administration is putting plans in place to deal with people who are asking for amnesty and relief at the border. So would you please describe the plans that the Biden administration is putting in place that Senator Warren alluded to 
to deal with this surge of migrants attempting to enter our country illegally? Senator, I would refer you to uh, DHS, which is uh, responsible for uh, the border and for, uh, uh, for those plans. The focus that I'm bringing to this is making sure that to the best of our ability, we are getting countries throughout our hemisphere where we have an unprecedented situation. We have not only uh, migrants from the Northern Triangle, we have, as you know, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Haiti, Cuba, uh, and then other countries that have uh, had uh, uh, populations from some of these countries who are also seeing them move north. And what's vital from the perspective of the State Department is to build a sense of shared responsibility for dealing with this. That's exactly what we've been doing. I just got back from Panama, where we had the foreign ministers of virtually all of the concerned countries in place to take practical steps to deal with this. For example, we have bilateral uh, agree, uh, arrangements now with Costa Rica and Panama, and we're working on more, uh, where countries will take steps, for example, to put in place transit visas so that people can't go through their countries to try to come to the United States, to do repatriations themselves, to treat people humanely, to, uh, to apply protections, uh, to grant asylum themselves, as opposed to having people come to the United States uh, to seek it. All of these things are practical steps that uh, we are working on and putting into effect uh, as the State Department to help deal with what is an unprecedented situation. In addition, there's going to be a summit of the Americas, as I mentioned earlier, uh, led by President Biden in a couple of months, where this will be a uh, major uh, topic of, uh, of issue. But look, I, I would again refer you to DHS. We obviously have, over many years, challenges in effectively, humanely, and efficiently um, processing those who come to our country and make claims of asylum. We need more resources to do that effectively, efficiently, so that their cases can be adjudicated very quickly. And if they do not have a legal basis for being here, they're returned. Thank, thank you, you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Booker. Uh, thank you very much. It's good to see you, Mr. Secretary. Thank you Senator. for uh, taking so much time to endure uh, all of our questioning and being so responsive. I just want to jump right in. I'm, I'm just back from a long eight days overseas, going from Poland all the way mm. to Nepal and um, India. Uh, and one thing when I was in Germany, which was our last stop, uh, I, we just really pressed both German officials we met with as well as our State Department folks about, uh, as we all are focused obviously on Ukraine, not losing focus on China's influence in the region. Germany is obviously now, after Brexit, the center economic power in the EU. Our relationship with them is critical, but I was stunned as I probed uh, our officials there uh, about how China's influence is just growing in their country. Um, and uh, we are not, I don't believe, just allocating the necessary resources to really counter Chinese influence um, in, in Europe. And I know you're doing a lot of things already. Your budget proposed uh, proposal includes funding for new initiatives to counter Chinese influence globally, such as increasing the number of China watchers. Um, but I want to make sure that this includes adequate funding for countering China in Europe. Uh, I was alarmed when I started asking questions to find out, for example, that China Costco shipping has struck a deal to take 35% stake in Hamburg's Tolerant Terminal, one of Germany's largest ports. And when I started asking our ambassador there, she was telling me we have actually plans to sell American property there that none of them could tell me anything when I started probing them questions other than the fact that they all think it would be a terrible mistake to sell the property there because it sends the exact wrong message in Hamburg that the Chinese are buying everything up they can and we're selling property that might just be bought by the Chinese. Mm -hmm. When I pressed even further, uh, uh, and could, they could not escape my 
questioning, they, they had to admit to me that they're threadbare there in our consulates in the second and third largest uh, cities and agreed with me that when it comes to countering China in one of the most important economic powers, we are not keeping up. In fact, we are losing ground. And so the first thing I just want to offer you an opportunity is why doesn't your budget uh, reflect the importance of adding investment in Germany? Uh, why are we selling critical property there that makes no, no sense whatsoever? Thank you. Um, and I'll look into the specific uh, th that you mentioned uh, just to make sure that I uh, fully could, understand. Could you get back to me in, in writing or call me? I'm happy one, to, yeah. one of the two. Sure. No, happy to do that. Um, we're focused on this relentlessly, including uh, in Europe, both at the level of the European Union and with individual countries. And uh, we've done a number of things to make sure that uh, we not only are focused on it, but we're, we're doing something about it. So... Uh, we established uh, a dialogue with the European Union on China and all of the aspects of uh, its engagement uh, in Europe that uh, the Deputy Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman, just uh, came back from. Uh, and one of the things that it's focused on is uh, Chinese investment that poses potentially uh, a strategic uh, challenge or threat to us. Uh, we have been going across the, the continent in urging uh, countries to adopt investment screening tools. I've done that personally. It's in virtually all of my engagements with countries that don't have them for the purposes of making sure that they can identify and, as necessary, do something about potential investments by China that could pose uh, a, a security threat. The purpose is not to cut off trade or investment from or with China. Uh, that's not the issue. The issue is focusing in on specific areas of strategic importance, including ports, uh, as well as uh, telecommunications and other things, that we have eyes on it and that we have uh, – we or they – have the tools to do something about it. So please, Third, we've also have... reorganized the department uh, to uh, have a whole of enterprise focused on China, again, led by the deputy secretary. And part of our instruction to all of our embassies uh, around the world, including in Europe, is to focus on and report on uh, the kinds of potential investments. And, and, I, and I'm be... grateful for that. And I'll, I'll probably have a conversation with the deputy secretary as well. Mm -hmm. It's just tough when I talk to the staff over there face-to-face, -face, no, that they do not seem to have the resources they need to do the work that you're talking about. And as I said to them, as uh, uh, Secretary Mattis once said, if, if you cut my State Department, buy me more bullets. Well, clearly, a, a pivotal country that just we just watched a decade or two of terrible policy with the Russians with increased engagement, uh, I don't want to see the same story repeated with China. And, and talking to my peers in that country they really needed to hear from us and mm -hmm. see from us that this was a priority for that for us that we were going to be holding them to account and that we were not retra retra retracting from uh, uh, Germany but actually upping our investments across the board. And I understand that you value this. I've only got a minute and, fifty-five. And seconds. I'd love I'd love to pursue this with you because we've expanded uh, the regional China officer program. So then each of our bureaus and regional bureaus we have people who are expert in this. We're expanding our. Um, capacity to, de to engage on economic issues. This is part of my modernization agenda, uh, in part to be and, able to do And I appreciate that. Real quick, uh, I see this every time I travel abroad, the lack of diversity in our State Department. It does not reflect America. Mm -hmm. It's stunning to me at times where I sit in rooms with no diversity whatsoever in a large group of a state team mm -hmm. with me. You have increased uh, uh, the uh, funding for uh, the um, uh, paid internship programs, I think that's important. That's right. uh, uh, there's a $10 million in addition to the $8 million in fiscal year 2022. It just It's something that's a priority to me and other members of this committee. I just really hope 
that's enough. And I hope we do more because it's disappointing to me whenever I come back from traveling abroad. And then when I talk to people of color that do serve in our embassies, they sort of feel like I do and Warnock and, and uh, perhaps uh, Tim Scott probably does here in the Senate. Like, wow, we need more diversity. So I'm hoping that – I know that's a priority for you from private conversations. I'm just hoping we can do something about it. And my last point, um, I, I, <laughs> I am so concerned about food security globally. This, to me, is stunning that we are – we don't understand the connection besides the moral urgency – everywhere from Yemen to Afghanistan to the Horn of Africa, the moral urgency to do something about this, how critical it is for global security to meet this food crisis. Because if not, as we've learned, and I talked with, obviously, Mr. Beasley from the World Food Program, mm -hmm. just to calculate for me that dollars invested in, in food security now save us hundreds of dollars in terms of the instability that's created when we don't meet these crises. So I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that the Biden administration in their next Ukraine package, because these are related issues, is asking for the resources necessary to meet this crisis. We know that there's probably about a $10 billion urgent need for resources to meet the food crisis alone. And I'd like you just to conclude by maybe giving me, which I know it does, reflect my sense of urgency of the gravity of this crisis and the need for us uh, to put in uh, five to seven billion dollars of American resources, especially to trigger other of our allies to join us in trying to meet this crisis, further exacerbated by the crisis in Ukraine. Uh, let me very quickly. I fully share that concern. Uh, this is an area of intense focus for us. We're going to use our presidency of the UN Security Council next month to focus on food security. Uh, we will be looking to work with Congress uh, to provide eleven billion dollars over five years for programs like. Uh, feed the future. Uh, we are working right now uh, with countries around the world to get them to increase the uh, donations they're making and resources they're giving to the World Food Program, to the Food and Agriculture Organization. We're pressing on countries that have large stockpiles of food to make those available, not to put in place export restrictions. Um, we are, the president has um, uh, made, um, uh, created incentives for fertilizer production in the United States to make sure that more of that is getting on market because, as you know, that goes to making sure that next year's crops and the years after uh, are abundant and prices uh, don't further go up. Uh, we've given an additional um, more than $100 million just recently uh, to, uh, for humanitarian, from the Humanitarian Assistance Fund to Ethiopia, to Kenya, to Somalia, to deal with their acute uh, problems. I could not agree with you more, and we're intensely focused on it. Mr. Secretary, I'm sure this was said, but I want to thank you for your courageous trip you just uh, uh, took uh, coming from and meeting with Ukrainians when I was in Poland. Um, your extraordinary leadership, uh, in my opinion, has been a light uh, during this crisis, and I want to thank you for that and, and your thank entire you. State Department staff and what thank they're doing under difficult circumstances. Thank you. Senator thank you. Johnson. Hey, Mr. Chairman. Uh, welcome, Mr. Secretary. Can you describe to me what your and what the administration's definition of is a win in Ukraine? Um, Senator, on the terms that uh, President Putin himself set, uh, Ukraine has already succeeded and Russia has failed. The terms that Putin set uh, was to eliminate the sovereignty and independence of Ukraine and to subsume it back into Russia. I can state with confidence that that has failed and that will fail. I do not see a scenario by which uh, that happens. Um, and as we're speaking, the Ukrainians are doing an extraordinary job, thanks to their courage, but also because of the support that we've led in providing 
in pushing back the Russians. They've done that from, from Kyiv and, and Western Ukraine and Northern Ukraine. They're now engaged, as you know, uh, in a ferocious battle uh, in the East and South. Uh, we are doing everything we can to make sure that they have the means uh, to uh, continue to do that. And ultimately, it will be up to them, uh, the Ukrainians, as a sovereign, independent country, how they want to resolve this. Uh, and we'll see if President Putin ever gets to the point of uh, being willing to engage in any meaningful uh, negotiation about that. But that will be up to the Ukrainians. They'll have our full support, as they do now. So you're not really willing to lay out what the administration's view of uh, what the end state ought to be to consider to win? The end state uh, should be determined by the Ukrainians as a sovereign, independent country. We'll back that. We'll continue to back that however they choose to do it. When you were with uh, President Zelensky, did he talk to you about what he considered uh, his objectives are? And I would say his objectives would be probably the definition of what he would consider a win. Um, Senator, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I think what it, what it would be fair and safe to say is that um, his objective would be to push the Russians out of the territory that they're trying to, to occupy in eastern Ukraine. And also, let me add to this, because I think it's important, uh, to try to make sure that uh, when that is accomplished, Russia is not in a position to repeat this exercise next month, next year, or in five years. And that goes to making sure that Ukraine has the effective capacity uh, to deter and defend uh, itself. Uh, and it also goes to something that Secretary Austin said yesterday, uh, was also uh, making sure in various ways that Russia does not have the effective means to do this again. So, so putting your two answers together, uh, President Zelensky would view his objective is to push Russia out, certainly out of eastern Ukraine. Uh, and you said the administration will support President Zelensky in his objectives. Uh, are you willing to state that that is the U.S. objective as well? If, if that aligns with uh, President Zelensky, that we will provide the support. We will, we, our goal is for them to win, according to the definition of uh, the Ukrainians and President Zelensky. Uh, we will support them in their efforts to win in uh, Ukraine, which means pushing Russia out of at least eastern Ukraine. If that is how the uh, Ukrainians continue, uh, let me just say again, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but if that is how they uh, define their, their, their objectives uh, as a sovereign, a democratic, independent country, that's what we'll support. Um, I come back to my initial proposition, which was that uh, on Putin's own terms, uh, which was trying to subjugate Ukraine fully uh, to Russia and eliminate its sovereignty and independence, that's already failed. I understand. So now it appears that Putin's goal is uh, establishing the land bridge, at least between eastern Ukraine uh, to Crimea. Mm -hmm. Is that uh, a very, are you willing to state that is definitely the U.S. objective, our NATO partners' objective, to deny him that land bridge? Our objective is to make sure that the Ukrainians have uh, the means to repel uh, and uh, deal with this Russian aggression wherever it is taking place uh, in Ukraine, including in, uh, in southern Ukraine, and that's exactly what we're doing. Again, I, I, I was at a Perm Subcommittee investigation hearing on the, the, the way we still have not addressed uh, military housing. Uh, so I missed some of the testimony, so maybe you already covered this, but are we going to provide them the types of weaponry they need, recognizing that what worked when Kiev was surrounded and now it's flatter terrain, uh, in some cases almost trench warfare, are we committed to providing the, the type of weaponry that President Zelensky was, was asking for? Uh, in short, yes. And uh, the point you make is an important one. The nature of the 
of the battle has changed from where uh, from what was necessary for Western uh, Ukraine and uh, and Kiev uh, to where things are now. Uh, we spent three hours with President Zelensky with the Secretary of Defense. Uh, a big focus of that conversation was uh, what uh, it is that Ukraine needs to deal with the current state of uh, of the Russian aggression. The Secretary of Defense, as we speak, is actually in Germany with. Um, the ministers of defense from about 40 countries focused on making sure that we are all uh, providing to Ukraine what it uh, needs to deal with this aggression. To what extent are we aware that China is helping Russia in their aggression against Ukraine? Are the, is the Russian, do we know they're using Chinese drones? We're very focused on this in a number of ways. Uh, President Biden made directly uh, clear to President Xi Jinping uh, that um, it would not be uh, in China's interest to materially support uh, Russia in this aggression or, for that matter, to uh, undermine sanctions. Uh, this is something we're looking at very, very carefully. I think you're seeing that China is having to deal with the significant reputational risk that it's already incurring by being seen as, <laughs> in the most charitable um, interpretation, on the fence and more practically uh, supportive of Russia. Um, we can, uh, in a different session, get into, uh, into more detail, but um, for now, we're not seeing um, significant support by China for uh, Russia's military actions. So finally, in the remaining seconds I have, I've been attempting to get from the State Department a report that uh, the State Department conducted on an inspection from the Wuhan lab. Uh, I think we understand that the overall thrust of that report is it was not a lab that uh, had the type of uh, safety standards that uh, we would have expected. Uh, I'm somewhat baffled that uh, that's a report that I'm simply not able to get my hands on. This report came from uh, it's April 19, 2018. Uh, the cable describing it was uh, January 19 of 2018. So um, is that something you'll commit to me today to turn over to my committee? Um Senator, I'll look uh, back into that. My recollection uh, is this. Uh, there was a program that, uh, uh, that ended in 2019. There's, uh, there was no uh, funding of that uh, program since. Uh, and uh, I think uh, any, uh, there was a report that may have been done by an outside contractor um, that uh, I think was uh, uh, seen as problematic uh, in uh, its methodology. And uh, in any event, I will follow up. I don't know the status of that, but we'll come back to you with it. Okay, I'd appreciate that, and I'll expect that response. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Mr. Secretary, for your testimony this morning and for your trip to Ukraine. I think it was something that the entire world watched with great appreciation. Um, I really want to start this, more, this afternoon um, with the Western Balkans, because I think Senator Murphy mentioned that he and I and Senator Tillis traveled through Serbia, Kosovo, and Bosnia-Herzegovina last week. And I think it's fair to say that if Putin is stalled in Ukraine, he may look elsewhere to sow chaos and that his fingerprints of malign influence could be found throughout the Western Balkans. Um, I am particularly concerned about the situation in Bosnia-Herzegovina, um, which has been plagued by corruption, a lack of leadership, and um, a tripartite presidency that is at war with itself. But there is also a very troubling security outlook there. 
we had a chance to meet with representatives from the U4 and NATO mission there, the European Union force and BIH, and everyone we talked to indicated a growing concern about the potential for Russia to play games with reauthorization of the U4 mm -hmm. force when it comes up this fall. Um, and it doesn't appear that there's any plan B for what to do about that. We raised um, this concern with our ambassador, obviously. We heard um, from a number of people. Um, and we raised it when we were at NATO headquarters in Brussels as well. So can you tell me whether we have a plan in place to maintain a peacekeeping presence? Um, first, let me just say thank you for your uh, engagement, for your leadership on, on these issues, not only your, your recent trip, but just uh, across the board. I remember well from my days uh, working for this committee, Senator Voinovich uh, was uh, right. the, 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 the sort of flag bearer and really appreciate the fact that uh, you've sort of taken the flag on the Western Balkans, and uh, it remains very important. Let me say two things very quickly. First, I think, generally speaking, the situation with the Russian aggression um, against Ukraine only underscores the broader urgency of integration for uh, all of these countries into European structures, something that in a variety of ways we're continuing to encourage, work on, support. We have a number of programs that try to help them advance their um, uh, candidacies and qualifications and meeting criteria uh, for these things that I know that, that you know very well. So that's just as a, um, a general proposition. And diplomatically, we've been engaged uh, in every um, aspect of this, whether it's the relationship between Kosovo and Serbia, uh, whether it's uh, helping uh, get uh, North Macedonia and as well as Albania across the line uh, in the, the direction of the EU, and finally, uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, where I very much share all of the concerns that you've, uh, you've cited. When it comes to the, um, the force, I would say uh, two things. First, I very much agree with you that some kind of international force with uh, an adequate mandate is essential to trying to maintain uh, a safe and secure environment in Bosnia and Herzegovina. W what I can tell you about where we are is this is a work in progress. We are, because of the concerns that you've raised about the mandate and whether it will be uh, blocked in effect and not continued, we are engaged with uh, a variety of uh, stakeholders in this on contingency planning um, in the event that the Security Council uh, is not um, in a place where it renews uh, the mandate or it expires, which is, I think, in November. So we're trying to make sure that we have something to back this up if, if that happens. Very happy to work with you uh, on that uh, and, and share ideas on how we can do that. Um, I would very much appreciate that. And we were able to speak with Deputy Secretary Don Fried, who is in the Balkans this week, yes. I know, and share with her what we had heard and our concerns about what's happening there. So um, I look forward to that because I, you mentioned Senator Voinovich. I first traveled with him to the Western Balkans in 2010. Hmm. And I think it's fair to say that in each of the countries we visited, I was more concerned about the political situation today than I was in 2010. Yeah. So I, we, we need to pay attention. And I know that um, there are people within the department who are trying to do that. Um, I want to go now to the Office of Global Women's Issues because I was pleased to see that the budget increased funding for that office, um, which is long overdue. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you think this is important and 
really the gender lens which with which we should be looking at foreign policy in many ways. Uh, thank you, and again, thank you as well for uh, your ongoing leadership on this. I think the, the budget request is, uh, is substantial, uh, and by design, uh, we are looking um, overall for about $2.6 billion to try to do a number of things to advance gender uh, equality, uh, to prevent and respond as necessary to gender-based violence, and to promote women, uh, peace, and security. And simply put, um, all of these things uh, are not only, um, I, in my judgment, um, the right thing to do, uh, they're also the necessary thing to do if we're going to have uh, societies that um, are making the, the most of their potential with the full inclusion of women uh, across the board, economically, uh, politically, uh, et cetera. Um, it is uh, necessary as well in terms of, I think, effectively dealing uh, with conflict and making sure that uh, women's voices and women's leadership uh, is engaged to both prevent uh, and deal with that. We know the, the track record when that happens is much better than, uh, than when it doesn't. And because there are uh, significant and severe uh, threats, some of which have been um, accentuated by uh, COVID-19, uh, where we know that vulnerabilities for a variety of reasons have increased, not decreased, um, in recent years. So we have um, a number of things that we're trying to do uh, that are uh, reflected in the budget and in our, in, in our, uh, in our programs. Uh, with regard to uh, gender-based violence, uh, there are a series of programs that would be funded by this request to offer support, to offer services, uh, to use our foreign assistance as well as our diplomatic action, again, to, to prevent and, and to deal with as necessary. Um, one of the critical aspects of this that I know you know very well and that you've spoken about is, for example, making sure that we have uh, in refugee uh, situations a uh, gender-based approach to making sure that there is uh, safe access to food, uh, water, uh, medicine, sanitation, uh, hygiene, and that these are factored in uh, not only to, into our programs but into the work that we're doing with the organizations that uh, provide uh, these services, and the budget and our programs reflect that. We also are, are very focused, again, on uh, women, peace, and security and working to support the participation, uh, the leadership, the empowerment of uh, women in decision-making on peace and security issues. This is very much a part of our uh, diplomacy, uh, again, because it, <laughs> we know um, that it produces better outcomes. So uh, we're pushing with diplomacy, with public diplomacy, amplifying voices of, uh, of, of local women, women-led organizations, all of these things have programs, and the programs, of course, have um, a price tag attached to them. Thank well, you. thank you very much. I'm out of time, but I hope we are keeping the women and girls of Afghanistan yes. um, included in that equation as well. Thank you very thank you. much. Thank you. Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman. Good Senator. to see you, Secretary. Thank you. As a former staff member to this committee, I know you agree that uh, robust oversight of uh, the workings of the department is incredibly important. So uh, with that understanding, I've, I've been disappointed in the department and the administration's communication uh, with and transparency to Congress as it relates to uh, the negotiations with Iran. Um, any sort of, of, of deal, so to speak, that, that might be cut with uh, the, the government of Iran that inadequately curbs Iran's appetite to uh, develop nuclear weapons, uh, to continue to carry out 
malign activities uh, within the region and, and beyond um, will not be in American interests, that of our allies, uh, or I believe of the Iranian people themselves. And, and so I was encouraged earlier that you gave a commitment to the chairman uh, to, to work with the committee on an open hearing uh, at some point in this work period to discuss negotiations. I would just build on that and, and, and ask you, uh, sir, if, if you commit to making Special Envoy Malley, uh, our, our chief negotiator, available to appear before this committee before an agreement is announced and agreed to. Yeah. Um, Senator, thank you. Uh, and look, I want to make sure that we are doing exactly as you say, which is to, to be communicating uh, effectively and in as real a time as possible. Uh, on this issue, on for that matter, on, on virtually uh, every other issue, I know that um, Special Envoy uh, uh, Mali has been uh, engaged in one way or another with members of this committee and Congress throughout the the uh, course of these negotiations, as well as, of course, with allies and partners. Um, I want to make sure that that that, that continues uh, to happen. So we will look for an opportunity uh, to make sure that uh, people are brought uh, as up to date as we possibly can. Uh, including by him or, or other members of his team. We're ha happy to work with you on that. So I, I understand the sensitivities of, of negotiations and, and the practical realities uh, that would prevent an hour-by-hour, hour, perhaps even a day-by-day day update. But in light of the gravity of this situation uh, and uh, the, the new news reports that uh, a deal may be forthcoming soon, uh, could we have Special Envoy Malley appear here before this committee? Can I have an agreement from you to that end? Uh, uh, if not before this work period is, is ended, certainly before an agreement is announced and agreed to. Uh, I'll go back and, make, and see what we can do to, 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 to make something happen. Now, I will say that um, I would assume that for that purpose, uh, we would probably need to do something in a, in a closed session because this is in the midst of a, uh, of a negotiation, uh, but let me come back uh, come back to you on that. I want to find a way to make that happen. Okay, uh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, staying on Iran, just briefly, do you commit that the IRGC's foreign terrorist organization designation will not be lifted as part of any agreement the administration reaches with Iran? Uh, the uh, only way I could uh, see it being uh, lifted is if Iran takes steps necessary to justify the lifting of uh, that designation. So uh, it, it, it knows what it would have to do in, uh, in order to see, that, uh, to see that happen. Do you agree that IRGC's FTO designation will not be lifted merely at the negotiating table, meaning not, not just concessions made at the negotiating yep. table, a pattern of, of constructive behavior uh, would have to occur over a period of time. I can speak vaguely mm -hmm. only uh, to this matter uh, in, in order for the FTO designation to be removed. Yes, this would, uh, ir irrespective of the nuclear negotiation, just with re regard to the F FTO, uh, it would require uh, Iran uh, to take certain actions and to uh, to sustain them, and of course, if uh, if it purported to do something and then uh, didn't, uh, and a designation, uh, any kind of designation, were lifted, it can always be uh, reimposed. Um, as you know, there's a long history to this uh, when it comes to the IRGC uh, designation. Uh, the uh, Bush administration looked at it, did not uh, do it. The advice was not to do it because it didn't gain anything, but might create actually more 
dangers for our, our people and forces in the region. The Obama administration came to the same conclusion. When President Trump decided to do it, it was against the advice of his chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, his military, and the intelligence community. Because in the judgment of those, uh, the two administrations and senior leadership in President Trump's administration, uh, the gain uh, was minimal and the pain was, uh, was potentially great. Yeah. And uh, again, uh, as, a, as a practical matter, um, the designation uh, does not uh, really gain you much because uh, there are myriad other sanctions on the, uh, on the IRGC. The primary uh, sanction when it comes to the FTO designation actually is a travel uh, ban. And the people affected by that ban when it comes to the IRGC, as you know, the IRGC is a large yes. force that has a lot of conscripts in it. They would not be able to, uh, to travel. The people who are the real bad guys uh, have no intention of traveling here anyway. I'm going to move on to Burma because I have a very large uh, Burmese-American diaspora community and I care a lot about this issue. Uh, I, I applaud the administration's decision to formally declare uh, the persecutions and killings of Rohingya people by the Burmese military a genocide. Uh, this is something Senator Merkley, Cardin, and many of my colleagues on this committee have pushed for and, and uh, I commend the administration for that. Um, Situation in Burma following last year's coup continues to inflict deep suffering on the people in the country and in uh, many diaspora families like those in Indiana. As you know, the FY22 NDAA required a briefing to Congress within 60 days of passage, examining a variety of, of policy options as it relates to the United States' response to the ongoing crisis in Burma. Among those issues are uh, determination on the legitimacy and recognition of the national unity government, holding those in the military accountable for their crimes, including sanctions, and looking into strategic interests and actions of the People's Republic of China. We're long overdue for said briefing and, and uh, legislative response uh, is, is, of course, suffering on account of, of this. And I fully acknowledge how many challenges uh, the, the administration is, is tending to. But we do need action here. And so I just ask you, Mr. Secretary, would you commit to working with others in the administration to follow the law and, and brief Congress on these matters as soon as possible? Yes. Thank you. I'll be following up. Thank you. <clears throat> well, Mr. Secretary, just some final questions to wrap up. Uh, I just came back from a trip with a series of colleagues, both on this committee and off, on uh, Australia, Japan, and Taiwan. And what became clear to me, not only in this trip, but with all of the ambassadors that we hosted of the ASEAN nations here in Washington, is that unless we have an economic and trade agenda, uh, we will not meet the strategic competition challenge that we have with China, and we will not necessarily meet uh, the reach for some of these countries to engage in a way that we want them on the security question um, because they just feel that we are not engaged. Uh, in the interagency process, I know you don't drive this agenda on your own, but in the interagency process, I hope that you are advocating for some robust economic, which is not necessarily a trade agenda, but economic and or plus a trade agenda because in the absence of that, even though we consider China our st single biggest geostrategic threat, we can't win it without this dimension. I, I strongly agree with you, Mr. Chairman. I think that's exactly right. Uh, we are pursuing that. Um, we are uh, launching uh, what we call the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework that addresses, I think, uh, part of this challenge. 
Uh, it includes a number of things. It includes um, trade facilitation. It includes standards for uh, the digital economy and, and technology. It includes building supply chain resilience, um, infrastructure investments, uh, including in, in clean energy, worker standards. There are a number of... Um, but it doesn't include market access, which is probably the single most significant thing they're looking for. So, you know, look, this is a good initiative. I said it to in the Finance Committee to our trade representative. Yep. But uh, all of these nations, when we've talked to them, have suggested that their aspiration for a much more robust engagement by the United States is necessary. So uh, that's why I add the economic equation, which isn't necessarily a trade agenda, because whether it's the DFC or whether it's Millennium Challenge mm -hmm. or whether it's uh, AID or whatever else, we cannot meet uh, something with nothing. Again, I very uh, much agree with your, your premise. And I, I hope you'll just be a strong voice within the interagency process. I intend to make that point to the president and others as well. And in that context, in our visit to Taiwan, it's very clear to me that if China could ultimately overcome Taiwan, which produces 90% of all the high-end semiconductors in the world, which means for the average American who may be watching, in everything that we use, the phone that we have, the car that we drive, the refrigerator we keep our food in, and I could go on and on, there are semiconductors. And if, in fact, China could overwhelm and take Taiwan and now have control of 90% of the world's semiconductors, uh, the world would be in a world of hurt. And that's just one dimension. Mm -hmm. Not to mention the message that we heard it would send within the region if, in fact, we don't come to Taiwan's assistance here because other countries will say, well, if they didn't do it for Taiwan, they're not going to do it for us. Do we have that sense of urgency? Uh, Mr. Chairman, we do, uh, and we're focused on this in a number of ways. First of all, with regard to semiconductors themselves, uh, we have a um, significant uh, advantage right now uh, over China in the ability to, uh, to produce the uh, highest-end uh, semiconductors and the, and the chips. Uh, as you know uh, very well, a small number of countries, to include Taiwan, are at the forefront of that, uh, and uh, we are taking very significant steps with Taiwan, with Japan, uh, with the Netherlands, uh, which is critical to this, and a few other countries to make sure that uh, when it comes to the highest-end semiconductors, um, they uh, are not uh, transferred uh, to China or China does not, have the does not get the technology uh, to, to manufacture them. Taiwan is, uh, is integral to that. At the same time, when it comes to Taiwan itself, uh, we are determined to make sure that it has uh, all necessary means to defend itself against any potential uh, aggression, including uh, unilateral action by China to disrupt the status quo uh, that's been in place now for, uh, for many decades. Uh, I think uh, there have been, uh, in foreign military sales, uh, close to $20 billion uh, in such sales since, uh, since 2017. That is ongoing uh, as we speak. Uh, there's been another almost $2.5 billion in direct commercial sales that we have uh, authorized or facilitated. We've been expediting third-party transfers uh, to, uh, to Taiwan. We've been supporting an indig indigenous industrial defense capability. And we are focused on um, helping them uh, think about how to strengthen asymmetric capabilities, again, as a deterrent. And I think, we're, I think we are now aligned uh, yeah. between our views of what their asymmetric capabilities need to be yeah. and their views, which is an important thing. So uh, I uh, look forward to our robust engagement to help them uh, have the capacity, 
capabilities of that uh, asymmetric capability. Mm -hmm. Finally, I requested a GAO report on the State Department's annual waiver of Section 907 of the Freedom Support Act, which was released in March. The report found that the State Department's reporting to Congress on fulfillment of waiver conditions uh, did not address required elements, including the impact on proposed assistance on the military balance between Azerbaijan and Armenia over a seven-year period. It also found that state did not provide detailed instruction to agencies about reporting requirements, and that state and DOD did not document their consideration of waiver requirements over a six-year period. I look at this budget now, uh, and uh, I see a $1.4 million discrepancy between the support for Armenia and Azerbaijan. I see what the Azerbaijanis are doing in Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, including trying to eradicate uh, the presence uh, of uh, Armenians who have lived there. Uh, how is it that we're going to provide more money, which in my mind is in violation, forgetting about the waiver, is uh, in direct violation of Section 907. That's not something I'm going to support, just so to have you know. Um, Mr. Chairman, I'm happy to go back and, and, uh, and take a look at that, both at the specifics of the concerns you've raised about the adequacy of the uh, reporting. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take that on. Uh, 907 is, as you know, an annual uh, decision. Uh, we have interagency review uh, going on, and uh, that review is underway. But I take uh, what you say seriously, and I'll, I'll take a look at that. More broadly, um, I've been very actively and directly engaged with leadership in both Armenia and Azerbaijan, including uh, just as recently as a week ago, uh, phone calls with uh, Prime Minister Pashinin and uh, with uh, President Aliyev, um, as well as their foreign ministers, uh, trying to help advance um, prospects for a long-term uh, political settlement with regard to Nagorno-Karabakh, um, we have been developing and promoting various confidence-building measures. We've been trying to push back on any unilateral actions, particularly uh, by Azerbaijan, that would uh, only inflame uh, the, uh, the situation. Uh, and we have a number of programs in place uh, that are part of the budget uh, to try to help advance um, more peaceful prospects. Um, so that's very much on my agenda. Happy to work closely with well, you. Well, we look forward to working on that. with you on it. And finally, uh, let me just say, and listen, you have a difficult job. I think the breadth and scope of and the depth that you've exhibited today is one of the reasons you make a great Secretary of State. Um, and we appreciate you've spent here nearly three hours. But I have to tell you something. We, see, we cannot seem to get uh, to call things as they are sometimes. The State Department put out a statement with reference to the decision to convict Osman Kavala in Turkey, that we are troubled and disappointed. This is why uh, authoritarian figures uh, like Erdogan, they get away with continuing to do what they're doing. We should have condemned the conviction. The department goes on to say that he should be released in keeping with the European Court of Human Rights rulings, as well as to free all other arbitrary incarceration. It goes on to talk about the harassment of civil society, media, political, and business leaders in Turkey to prolong detention. It goes on to talk about all of the, there, are, there are more lawyers and journalists in prison in Turkey than any other place in the world. That says something considering some of the terrible places in the world. So we express 
uh, uh, trouble and disappointment. Our, uh, you know, our ally Turkey, I mean India, that's in the Quad, they go buy uh, oil from Russia, they buy the S-400, they abstain at the United Nations, but they're a member of the Quad. So at some point, messages that we send globally here are inconsistent. I've heard President Biden say that he stands up for human rights and democracy in the world. I believe him. That's his history from the time he sat where I'm sitting today. But man, when we say we're troubled and disappointed, that doesn't cut it. When we allow someone who we've invited to be part of the Quad to go ahead and purchase the S-400, go ahead and purchase Russian oil in violation of the uh, global sanctions we're creating, go ahead and, you know, vote against uh, our uh, position and most of the world's position at the United Nations. If you think you can do all those things and still get whatever it is that we give, which is a lot, then you will. So I just hope that, Mr. Secretary, uh, you'll look at, uh, at some of the positions that we take and equivocate less and be more forcefully directed as to what people should or should not be able to do. Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, first I take your point about that specific statement, and uh, I will go back and have a look at that uh, myself. Uh, more broadly, uh, and I said this at the outset, I think we're at a very important uh, strategic moment as various countries, to include the countries you've cited, are thinking about and possibly reconsidering uh, some of their other relationships, uh, including with Russia. And as a strategic proposition, um, I think it's very much in our interest to uh, encourage that and uh, work with that and um, see what we can do uh, to make sure that along with success for Ukraine in Ukraine, uh, we also take advantage of other strategic opportunities that may present themselves as a result of Russia's aggression, as well as dealing with some of the new challenges we face. So I think that also has to factor into our, our thinking about how we approach things. Uh, countries, uh, some countries have had decades-long relationships, as, as, uh, as you know very well, uh, with Russia that uh, take time to, uh, uh, to change and to adjust. Um, so um, I hope that as we do this, um, we want to be uh, as effective as we can in getting the right strategic result, even as, to your point, uh, we keep faith with uh, our basic principles, especially when it comes to I, human rights. Listen, I agree with you. Look, on India, I, I want India uh, to be aligned, uh, not with, with us, is the final point I make. As I traveled all over this region and to receive foreign dignitaries here, I say the choice is not between the United States and China. The choice is what type of world do you want to live mm -hmm. in? Mm -hmm. One that is ultimately uh, governed by the rule of law, where you get to choose who governs you, where you get to worship as you please, where you get to ultimately achieve economic success by the use of your intellect or the sweat of your brow, uh, or is it a world where you're minded? where you don't get to choose who governs you, where you don't get to worship as you please, where you're put in a concentration camp because of who you are, uh, and the list goes on. That's the choice. Uh, but at the end of the day, in the pursuit of making that choice clear, uh, I hope that we will 
hold higher expectations of some of uh, those who we describe as allies because historically some of these countries who view themselves as non-aligned, ultimately, if they can have it both ways, they will. Uh, and at some point, there has to be a, def a definition of which type of world mm -hmm. do you want to live in. With the thanks of the committee for you. your very extensive uh, responses to everybody's questions here and, uh, and your service to our country, this record will remain open until the close of business tomorrow. And uh, uh, this hearing is adjourned. <laughs>